This is Bars Loaded with Ben and Nick. A strength, powerlifting and performance podcast. Where we hope to share our opinions, help educate and inspire. Tell a few stories, build a community along the way and... Bars Loaded. Hello mate, how are you? I'm good mate, how are you? I'm very well, happy Monday. Happy Monday. Before we get into anything, I'm just going to point out something really quickly. Yeah. We are scarily colour coordinated. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? Because I always no. wear this hat. <laughs> no. Oh, I don't know. I was just like, oh, I'm like, I'll wear my green hat tonight because all the other ones are a bit fucking stanky. Mm. That happens so quick with hats, doesn't it? Do you wear hats when you train? Oh, yeah. Do you? Like, this was black. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. For everyone that's listening only, the hat is now... Brown. <laughs> yeah, so brown that it's almost cream. Yeah, like it's <laughs> faded so heavily. Like, in fact, you can see the difference between the logo and the actual hat. <laughs> like, yeah, that is... was, it, was it all black, logo oh, and yeah. hat? Like, it was all this colour. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. How old is it? Oh, I'd be under 12 months old. <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm just, I'm a sweaty boy. Like, I sweat like crazy. Yeah, I sweat like crazy too. You know, funnily enough, I sweat less um, since I've lost some weight. But Funny still, that. Yeah, but still very sweaty. On the hat topic, this is really gross, and this gross grosses M out. Yeah. This is probably, probably one of the things that grosses her out the most about me. Yep. Because <laughs> there's, there's a few. But this Good. is this is high up there. This would be top three. Is I like to train in hats. I always have. I've I've always liked wearing hats. But I also I, because I love hats. Whenever I get a new hat, I don't just save that hat for outside the gym. That hat then becomes the hat that I wear everywhere, even when I train. And then if I go out for dinner, and then if I like wherever I go, I have that hat on until that hat is just absolutely disgusting and then as instead of continuing to wear that hat as the training hat and keep the new hat as a good hat the new hat just becomes disgusting as well so i fall into that as well because i'll buy a new hat going yep this is going to be like my non-training hat but then i'll wear and i'll go out and i sweat through it anyway and then it starts to discolor and i'm like well it's fucking ruined now i may as well wear it for training as well yeah does your do your hats get mold on them sometimes no. That's never happened to your hats? No. So I don't know if it's the way to I... To be s- fair, like, I do wash mine as well. Okay, I don't do that. Like, every one... Like, when... Like, if I pick my hat up and I'm like, smelling, I'm like, mm, it smells a bit funky. That's yep. where I'm like, it probably just needs to go through the wash real quick. But um, then that ruins that ruins the cardboard in the in the peak, though. The hat's fucked already, dude. Like, I don't... <laughs> I know, so, but what hap- what I do is I'll wear the hat, and because I sweat so much, the hat, the whole hat by the end of a training session is wet, right? Like yep. to the point where, um, in su- like the warmer days, there's actual like sweat dripping off the peak of the hat, so it's completely soaked. And yep. then I'll come home, and all of my hats stay in a shelf, a, mm-hmm. a designated hat shelf in my wardrobe. So I'll take the hat off, put it back in the wardrobe, close the wardrobe until I wear the hat next. And then when I get the hat out, usually like 
so like along here, along the side of the hat, down the bottom, it gets yep. real like shiny and gross looking. And then when you touch it, it's like smooth and you can pick it off. And I'm just assuming it's mold. Oh, that's disgusting, dude. You need to yeah. fucking sort that shit out. <laughs> it's so gross, man. But the crazy, what's even grosser about it is that I know it happens. And, and I still do it. And I grab the hat and I look at it and I'm like, oh, God damn it. That shiny mold thing has happened again. And instead of washing the hat or picking the mold off or whatever, I just put it on and then go and train again. I'm like, yeah, sweet. So fine. <laughs> that's all good. As soon as I start sweating, it washes it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. It's beautiful. What... It's the cycle of life. It's the cycle of life. The cycle of my hat's life. <laughs> <laughs> they don't tend to last too long. Mm, I feel that. The worst ones for it are the, um, you know, the lad hats, the the Nike dry fit hats that are like, they don't go over the ears. They're like the, they kind of sit high on the head. They don't have the the front bit. They're kind of just like skull caps almost with like a a really curved peak like that. Kind of, yeah. And they're like a dry fit material. So they're not, okay. they're not this cloth material. They're, um, they're supposed to be like moisture wicking and quick drying. That one just molds over the whole hat. <laughs> yeah, that one's really gross. So yeah, I bought a um I bought a green one of those too, so you can't see the mold. Smart. How's your weekend? Uh weekend was pretty good. Just sort of cruised training was all right i um had my first like squat session in a while um like first sort of like proper squat session since i kind of like, hurt my back yeah um moved really really well bench on sunday went really really well um yeah it was good cool i, um, I think went last... to a... go ahead i was like i went to a um like a classical performance as well on saturday night oh really yeah so it was like i don't know if you've seen the ads for it but they do like um like this group in particular there was a cello player two violinists and a viola player okay um and they were doing covers of spy movie like soundtracks so there was heaps of like heaps of the soundtrack from bond they also did like the mission impossible one um and it was all done with like yeah like classical instruments and it was just beautiful but it's all done with like these like i we were really disappointed so my mate demir and i we went um and they had like all these candles Mm -hmm. we got there and we're like oh fuck yeah like all these candles classical music for like a spy movie like this would be awesome we got there and the candles were fucking fake no way yeah because it's what were they what were they just lights so they're like the lights in it and they've got these little um i don't know what the hell they are but they like they spin around to kind of give the illusion of like a flame moving yeah wait did i see that did you put that on your story yeah and who did you go with my mate demir what's his instagram uh dr crow sensei yeah i see that guy pop up everywhere yeah there's other people that i follow that tag him too right probably yeah yeah okay yeah Cool. What's his story? In terms of... I don't know. Just tell me a little bit about him. I'm interested. I thought so I was your only he... friend. <laughs> uh, so Big D just finished I need, his... I need to suss him out. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you're what, 6'6"? Six, six? Mm-hmm. I think you've got him on height by like an inch. Nice. And he used to have you on weight by like 20 kilos. Um, but he, like you, is in the process of dropping a bit of weight at the moment. So I think he's aimed to get down to like 125, but like a pretty pretty mean looking 125. Yep. Um, he just finished his degree in chiropractor or chiropractic. Mm-hmm. Um he runs a gym in like South Bank in Melbourne, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's got a beautiful dog named Flex. Cool. I love it. Sounds like a cool guy. I approve yeah, of your friendship. He's a good dude. And what else did you do? How'd training go? I, I haven't spoke to you much about your training since last Monday. Um, so again, sort of like this week was kind of like transition week, taking it pretty easy just kind of giving the body a bit of exposure to some stimulus mm-hmm. um it was good i um like because you know i was like when i moved back to melbourne how i had to get like a second job mm-hmm. i quit yeah so that was literally going to be the next question that i asked after your training i was going to say yeah. that i you and i spoke about that on I don't know the the day, but I know that it was the day that I did the conditioning circuit and nearly died. Yeah. And I said, go for it. And then I saw that you, I actually didn't follow up with you whether you did or not, but I noticed you put on Instagram a little post saying that you were taking on some more face-to-face clients at the end of the month. Yes. So, I sent through my resignation on Friday um, and I was like, you know, with, with where I was, I was like, I'm going to give them a week's notice. That was kind of like my notice period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I emailed them and I was like, look, you know, this is, this is happening. Uh, it was like, you know, like I, I found like employment in, uh, in my chosen field, which isn't a lie. Um, may have been a little bit of a bend of the truth, but is what it is. Um, and then I was like, you know, I was like, thank you for the opportunity, did all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, obviously my notice period is a week, um, which I'm happy to see out if you guys require me to. Um, but if you'd prefer me to finish up like early, like I'm more than happy to pretty much like bring the ute back in, drop off all the tools and all that sort of jazz and, you know, call it a day. And I, I went into work this morning and an hour and a half after I'd got into work, they're like, yeah, like once you finish this, like this little bit of a cleanup here, like just meet us back at the office and um, we'll figure out what, we do, what we're doing from here on out. And I literally got back there and I'm like, yeah, just bring up your, your phone and your iPad, um, hand the keys back and that's you done for the day. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did that feel good? Honestly, man, like the conversation I kept having with people was, I mean, like I've, I've literally been working since I was 13. Oh, yeah, 13 years old. Like I started um, refereeing basketball when I was like 13. Like I've been working for 20 years. Like I've been working a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it's not that the job was shit, but like I, I hadn't been that depressed at work ever. Um, like obviously like, you know, coming back to Melbourne under the circumstances that I did, I was like, well, I, I, I need something to help me pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of like the first job that popped up. I was like, whatever, like I'll take it. It's money. Like who gives a shit? Yeah. Um, 
but man, like I was, I was miserable. Yeah, and I think it's good to address that it served its purpose. But I think yeah. it's time, it's time for you to move on now. And I think that's such a good decision for you. And I think you're going to be a lot happier moving forward. Yeah, like I've got, I'm sort of there's a few different locations that I'm kind of tossing up between at the moment. Um, like I've got a few like walkthroughs, but like there's like I think three different gyms that I've got to go check out this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so pretty much like hopefully by the end of this week, I've got a, a confirmed location um, that I'll be able to start running like face to face clients with again, which will be awesome. Yeah, that's um, so good. But yeah, it'll be good. Are you obviously this will give you more opportunity to run some more seminars this year as well? Very much so, which is like the seminars has always been kind of I, I feel like it's as much as like it's a weird one like it as much as it's like my like it's not the cheapest thing in the world but certainly as far as like education goes in the fitness industry like my courses aren't expensive mm-hmm. um and the whole idea around that was kind of as like my my low barrier entry item to look kind of like work with me um so like my mac methods for example like it's usually like $99 for a day. Yeah. And obviously that's fantastic. The whole idea of that is like, I might have 10 people at it. I might have 25 people there. Like that's kind of like, I want a lot of people coming to this. Like I want a lot of engagement. Um, Also I then run my, like my lift seminars where it's like, it's very hands-on. It's very practical orientated. And that one there, I tend to cap it at like 12 to maybe 15 people tops, depending on where I'm running it. Um, and that one there is like we go into everything. That's obviously a little bit more expensive because it is like there will there is a certain amount of people I can have here. If I can get it sold out, then I know what I'm making and anything in between there I'm, I'm happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously I've got like a few other courses that I've got uh, in the works at the moment um, and they'll kind of be priced on the, che- the probably cheaper end of things as well. Um, but yeah, like there'll be... A lot of courses I'll be wanting to look at get like up and running this year, which would be cool. Yeah, that is cool. That's super awesome. I've actually never run a seminar, but it's something that I wanted to get into this year. Maybe we can do a buzz loaded seminar Let's throughout throughout the year at some point. I just Fuck think yeah. from a um like an impact that, that you can have on the industry. Um yeah. the way I, the way I look at it is is you know, as a coach, we can we work with one athlete, one lifter, one person, um, and we help them. That's really cool. But the chances of them then taking that information and passing it on are very little uh, because that's not their job. Um, whereas if you then get to the point where you can run seminars and then you're the person that's then educating the next group of coaches, trainers that come through, and then they take the information that you've given them and that you've learned throughout your career, and then they pass it on to all of their clients. That yeah. then then that impact that you have is significantly broadened. Yeah, and that's always been like the fun part for me is like I've always tried to gear my courses more towards coaches, mm-hmm. um, purely for that reason. It's like if I want to have an impact on this industry. Um, you know, if I'm trying to reach every individual client, like there's only there's only so many people I can reach. Whereas if I can be like, well, I'm attracting coaches, you know, I might go and work with someone and then, 
you know, three, five years down the track, if they're still in the industry, then it's like, well, that person could have worked with between 30 and 200 clients in that time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot more impact that I then get to have from a secondary perspective, which is, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole reason that most people get into this industry, right, is to help as many people as possible. And if you get, yeah. into, co- if you get into coaching to be rich, you're probably going to be pretty upset. <laughs> well, like, don't get me wrong. Like, you can make wild money in this industry. Like, there are plenty of people out there who run, like, seven-figure online businesses. Mm-hmm. But I've always looked at it and I'm like, again, like, I'll, I'll really preface this with, like, I don't have an issue with people making money. What I have an issue with is when people go into the sole focus of making money and they don't give a shit about the client. Like if someone goes in there and they're like, hey, look, my my primary goal is to work with as many people as I can and make sure they all get this most the most incredible service and a subsequent like outcome to that goal is the fact that I'm, I'm going to make a million dollars a year. If someone can do that, all the fucking power in the world to you. I've got, I got nothing but like respect for you for being able to do that because to build obviously a seven-figure business that's a lot of funny hard work yeah of course and when the focus is the people though that's that's generally a more positive outcome that leads to more financial success i feel like when financial success is the main priority or main focal point that tends to then skew decisions away from what's best for the client and you know a great example is we see this in a lot of sports, but we see it in powerlifting all of the time is when a federation's main concern is how much money they make, not how good the lifter experience is. That federation yeah. doesn't tend to last very long or have great deals of success. And or like, they have short-lived success and then they get found out and then the lifters move to a federation that is more lifter-focused. Yeah. And then that federation tends to have greater, more long-lasting success um, both in terms of the amount of lifters that they have, which then also like flows on to how much financial success they see. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people can kind of work out pretty quickly whether a coach or whether a company or whatever it might be, whether they are just solely focused on oh, how much money am I making mm-hmm. rather than going – and like, and don't get me wrong, like as, a, as a coach and as a business owner, like it is that fine line between going – I need to obviously make sure that my focus is making sure my clients are looked after. But at the same time, like I'm also running a business. Like I need to be very savvy when it comes to my numbers, what my figures are, whether I'm actually like running a successful business or whether I'm just running a hobby that makes a little bit of extra money on the side. Exactly. And this is where like, you know, I think a lot of people like, starting out in the industry like a lot of people want to go head first into the industry but it's like you know this day and age like all the business gurus like oh find your niche and you know like double down on that one and become like position yourself as an expert and it's like mate like you can't be an expert when you've got like 12 months of industry experience like you just can't like no i used to work with a guy this is like back in like 2019, 2020. And he's like, oh, I've done a lot of these like marketing courses and like I've got to position myself as an expert. I'm like, mate, before you worry about how good you are at marketing and all that sort of stuff, like get good at your job. Like yep. at the end of the day, 
And it's funny, I was actually having this conversation with Demir about this on Saturday night. And I'm like, the thing I've always struggled with is like, I don't know how to mark. Like my skill set is like, again, without trying to toot my own horn here, my skill set is quite good. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very confident in my skill set. And like when someone comes in, it's like, I'm pretty certain I'm going to be able to help this person. Um, but in terms of being able to market myself to display that skill set for people, it says like, oh, that's just not a, a strong suit for me. Um, and he and I were kind of talking about it and we're like, he and I, again, like Demir's been in the industry for I think like 15 or 16 years. I'm coming into year 13. Like we've been around for a bloody long time, like as as you have been as well. Like, And we kind of came up at a, at a time where like the first few years of, the, of my career wasn't about like, how famous am I on social media? It was like, become really good at your job. Word of mouth is going to be absolutely wildly beneficial. And just make sure you help people. Do it bloody well. Charge appropriately. And be a good human. And they were kind of like the four main like categories around like to be successful. Whereas nowadays, like you can be an absolute like shit kind of a human being. You can be a, like a bloody snake oil salesman or whatever it is. You can be a charlatan. You can you can rip people off, and you can still be successful and keep making money. Because if someone says anything bad about you, you just block them on social media, and people can't find that anymore. Yeah, like you can. People can hide their trails so easily. Yeah, and you can you can posture yourself on the internet, but I do think it comes out at the end of the day. If you do something long enough, I think your true true colors show. Yeah, but I think that's exactly to the point that you were saying is when. <laughs> Man, when I started, Instagram wasn't a thing. Mm. It didn't. It literally didn't even exist. Like not yeah. not coaching on Instagram, not marketing on Instagram. Like Instagram itself didn't actually even exist. So, you know, the way that we used to get told or get taught to market our services was be on the floor. We had our PT board at the front of the gym which yep. had your, your, photo, your photo on it in an awkward pose, which I've made one for you and some qualifications and a little one paragraph blurb about yourself. That And that was that was your chance to market yourself and, and appeal to the people that you want to ideally train. Just yep. that, that one little paragraph. And then beyond that, it was you get the leads that are given to you by the gym and you do something for free for them and try and convert them into a client. Or you walk around the gym, you talk to people, you build relationships, you get seen, you give out some tips, and then you offer your services. There was like a a five point touch system that we got taught where you want to touch someone five times before you ask for the sale, and it's not like touch them, but like greet them once, then say hello to them on the floor using their name, um, offer to correct one of something that they're doing in the gym, but you have to ask and get approval to do that. And then follow up with them the next time you see them and ask if they've implemented that thing yet and how they felt. And then there was one last one. I can't remember what it was. I'll give give a, um, a follow-up suggestion on how they can progress that forward in their own training. And then the next time you see them after that, you then have the right to ask them to buy training from you. So that yeah. process could take like months yeah. depending on depending on like, how often you saw someone and it wasn't just like, 
oh, let me flick through my DMs and see who I've had a conversation with. It's not, you're not walking around the floor taking notes. This is, these are conversations that you're having throughout your shift and you have to remember this person's name, what they did, what their issue was, what, what their wife's name is, all of these things. And then the next time you see them, pull that back up and have a conversation with them so that they know that you care about them. And you can't do yeah. that unless you genuinely care or you're a psychopath. Yeah. One of the two. And that's the that's the thing I find really interesting is like even nowadays, like people can be like A, not even qualified to be writing programs, but they can like and this isn't me taking away from them as athletes, but they can do like a feat of strength that's like quite impressive. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, well now you can buy my training programs that I've written for like nineteen ninety-five because they've got you know, 700,000 followers on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, all of a sudden they're like, and again, don't get me wrong, like if someone's been able to build a personal brand and build a business off that, like good for them. But this is also then when I come back and I go, well, are you actually qualified to be helping? It's like PTs who, are, who write nutrition plans when they don't have a nutrition qualification. It's like mm-hmm. stay in lane. Like, and there's nothing wrong. Like, you know, obviously like, PTs and coaches like we can give advice and guidance around nutrition but as far as like being in the trenches of it like there is so much shit that goes on in the body that frankly like most people don't understand the processes behind and mm-hmm. they'll oh, we'll go off and do that and then all of a sudden someone come back a couple of weeks later and like oh well I feel like an absolute bag of shit because what they've been told to do is frankly dangerous yeah and this is the challenge with our industry is it's one of it's a like in industry, we can have a massive, massive, massive impact on people's overall quality of life. And it's probably one of the most underregulated industries there is. Like it's crazy. Yeah, it's super easy to see how people can find themselves in that situation though. When you think about it from a perspective of everyone has a body and then if you then go and train, right? So say, say I'm not qualified, I have a body, I go to the gym, I try a few programs. I, I do it for six months, 12 months. I see some good results. I am, I then am like, okay, I know how to train. I have a body. I know how to train this body. These are results that I've gotten. So then when someone comes to me because they see my results and they say, oh, Nick, you're looking pretty good. You've been training hard for 12 months. How? What are you doing? I want to tell them because I'm proud of myself and I think I've got it all figured out because I know what has worked for me for the last 12 months. So then it's easy for them, those people to go and and give advice and say, this is what I do. This is what you should do. This is what's worked for me. And I think that's all well and good until it doesn't work or until something goes wrong and not having a, a good understanding of what's actually happening when you're moving in certain ways and how that affects the body in, in different ways. And when that goes wrong, how do you then correct that? And what is actually yeah. going wrong? Because it can go bad very quickly. And very, what, very quickly. And what works for one person can be drastically different from another person. And, and I often liken it to um, driving my car. So yeah. I have a fast sports car. It's a very nice car. And I hate it to death because I can't get in and out of it. But once I'm in it, it's beautiful. It's very, very fast. 
Yeah. And sometimes I drive it fast. Usually when M goes away on holidays without me, I've been known <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but Smart. what I what I would never do is go and tell someone else how to drive their car really, really fast. Yep. Because I'm okay taking the risk on my own sometimes, but I'm not going to say, hey, Ben, next time you're here, you should go up to Mount Sugarloaf and drive really, really fast around here. I did it at 140 Ks and it worked really well for me. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is where- Because like, I'm, not think... a, I'm not a race car driving instructor. No, but like, and this is where like, obviously when we work with clients, until we learn that client appropriately, like at the end of the day, there's a degree of guesswork in there. But as you get experience as a coach, it becomes informed guesswork. You're like, well, I know that where this person is over here and they're wanting to get up over here, I know that the process to get from here to here is going to require X, Y, and Z along this pathway. I know that I'm going to give them something similar to this. It might have to do with a few of these ones here to kind of find the right formula that works for them. But eventually, we're going to end up here because we know that, you know, time and time again, this works here. Yeah, exactly. It's it's informed guesswork of 15, 20 years experience, not yeah. what's worked for me. After six months of training. Like yeah. it's the classic... Oh, I've done a powerlifting, I've done a novice powerlifting comp. I'm now going to offer comp coaching. Hmm. Like, no, you don't like, you don't know enough about the sports to be coached. Like, my, like, again, I have no issue. If people are like, hey, look, I want to actively get involved in, in coaching powerlifting because I, I love the sport. I love helping people. I want to be actively involved. It's like, cool, volunteer. Mm hmm. Like that's probably the best way to get involved in a sport is like, like if you genuinely love it, give, give your time. Yeah. More people should do that anyway. Yeah. Like for me, like I really want to get into wrecking. Yeah, me too. I'm actually, um, I'm actually lined up to do, um, to do my GPC, like the first level certification. Yeah. Um, at the at the next meet that's coming up, the Iron Maidens meet, the female only comp. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so I'm gonna sit in on a few of the flights and yep, and get signed off for that. So that'll be cool. Nice, because yeah, my like my thing is like I watch some comps and I get like I'm not gonna go into like naming feds, but I'm like the standards are like a here and here. Like I've seen videos of a guy who's been benching right. And he unracks the bar, and as he's lowering down to his chest, he's about this far from hitting his chest, and he gets a press call. Yeah, and I'm like, in what fucking world? I've seen a video. Like... I've seen a video of a guy whose name rhymes with Pen Barker. Is that where his bum comes <laughs> off the bench about this high on his bench press, and it still gets white? It yes. is. <laughs> Point in case is like <laughs> that that should not have passed. <laughs> but I mean, shit, like how many squats have you seen? Dude, that was so bad. 
That oh, was dude. that was so bad. I remember, like, I pressed it up. I got the rack collar. I rack it. I got up laughing, going, "I can't even believe I bothered pressing that up." And then I saw the three white lights. I'm like, "What? I'm not like, even, not even two, three. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that couldn't have been further from like, unless I just like blatantly missed it. Like, that couldn't have been a worse lift to give white lights to." Yeah, it wasn't subtle. No, like you can literally see like <laughs> yeah. two to three inches of light under my arms. You could see straight through. The judges were probably looking at each other underneath probably. you. They're yeah. Like, like, Hello. <laughs> yeah. But like that, that in itself, again, like this doesn't mean like talking shit on those judges necessarily, but like it's a great example of a lift that shouldn't have been passed. Like I think, and oh, Don't quote me on this, but I think maybe it was Ryan Williams um, did a comp where he didn't think that like I don't it was it was a really high level powerlifter here in Australia, and they were like, no, actually it was an American lifter. Um, oh fuck, I can't remember who it was, but Herbie, that's mm-hmm. who it was. And I think he squatted high and it was meant to be a world record and he got whites on it. And he ended up coming back at the end of the day and he's like, I'm not going to accept that as a world record because it wasn't to standard. Mm-hmm. He goes, as much as you guys gave me white lights, just don't count it as a world record because it shouldn't be a record. And I feel like that caliber of athletes sit there and go, you know what? You've just said, yes, that, that lift is good to be a, considered a world record. To turn around and go, like, and again, like to be fair, if my bench had been for a record and I got whites for it, I probably would have turned around and gone, <laughs> no. Um, but it's always that, like, it, like it's time and place, right? Like, there will be times when, like, I've looked at some of my squats and I'm like, oh, it's a bit fucking borderline. And this is where I think, like, obviously looking at like standards of lifting. Like you kind of have to entrust that judgment to the judges because that's what their job is. Yeah, of course, that's what they're there for. That's really yeah. interesting that um, that story. You don't often see that level of what I would call I would call that sportsmanship. Yeah, um, fucking oath. And obviously, there's a few different meanings of what that is, but I think that that would definitely fall under like good sportsmanship is is having integrity um, within the game or or the competition and you don't often see that in many sports it's it's Especially all it's individual like sports it's like win at all costs but i think one's well i know one sport that you definitely see it in is cricket um every now and then you'll see like someone uh you know get get out or something and they will walk off without even if the umpire says not out or if they get a not out call they'll just they'll say no nah, i was definitely out and they'll walk off um, or they won't wait for the the call. I don't know if that happens so much anymore, but back when I used to watch cricket, it ha- it did happen every now and then. And I re- well, haven't really seen it in many other sports. So, because I, I grew up playing like competitive basketball, and I remember there was a few games that I played in where, like, obviously, like, if you like went to go block a shot and you hit the ball. And like they call a foul, and you're like, mate, like that was that was on the ball, like I didn't touch him. You're kind of like, well, all right, well, shit. Like, you'll you'll argue that one, mm-hmm. but there are times when like you might 
accidentally foul someone, they call a foul, you're like, yeah, no, like, that, that, that was me, man, like, my bad. Or if you are, like, trying to chase someone down the court and you accidentally bump into them and you're like, oh, shit, like, I've hit them pretty hard and they're about to go flying and you can catch them, like, you'll catch them and grab them so they don't fall and hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, there are instances like that in sports where I'm like, I find it really beautiful to see, like, that degree of sportsmanship on the field, like, whether it is, like, on the court with basketball, like, down the field for cricket or like on the platform for powerlifting, like when someone can own up and sit there and go, you know what? My integrity as an athlete trumps everything else. Yeah, I think that's cool too. I'm a yeah. big supporter of that. That's an awesome story. I've never heard that before. Um, what were we talking about originally? Oh, your training. Mm. You squat yeah. it. Yep. Uh paused heel elevated safety bar squat. Felt good. Yeah, I mean it was light, so like it yeah. should feel good. But again, this is a you you did that on a slant board though, right? Yeah. So we've got at the gym that I train at, we've got the prime slant boards. Yep. Um, and this was on the fifteen degree board. Is there any reason why? Because I noticed you did it on a slant board in your vivos. Is there any reason why you didn't wear your squat shoes and you went with the slant board? Yeah. So. One thing I noticed in my weightlifting shoes is because of how pointed the toe is in the weightlifting shoe, my toes get really squashed. And I feel like the proprioception that I have between my feet down regulates like crazy. And then I get really unstable like through my like my lower body. And obviously because I'm trying to rehab at the moment, mm-hmm. my objective is like I just want to hit good positions and I want to feel nice and strong and stable there. Yep. So I was like, I'll have a bit of a play around with the Vivos on a slant board. So I'm still kind of getting the same stimulus, but I can use my feet a lot better. And it just felt so much nicer. Yeah. So cool. that's where I'm like, do you know, um, I think they're called like the tier shoes. Yeah. That was what I was going to suggest is if you've looked into some wide toe box lifting shoes, because that I have a client that just got some for Christmas. Yeah. Actually, I have two clients one got the um the tyr version of the vivos so the yeah the barefoot shoes and the other got the tyr lifting shoes with the heel and both have a wide toe box and they love them yeah i think once i probably start getting into training a little bit more seriously I might justify the money on them, but for now, I'm like, I don't need to go to that extent if I can just use a slant board and get what I need just training my Bebo's. Yeah, especially when you have those prime slant boards available to you. They're really nice because they're nice and wide. Yeah. But, so, like, we're pretty, like, I mean, like, the gym I train at, like, we are spoiled beyond belief, which is awesome. You are. Um, but, I mean, like, we've got, the slant, we've got like the wide slant boards, they've got narrow slant boards, they've got the individual slant boards. So, if you want to like play around with like like a, a split stance but heel elevated, like split squat, like you can do that. Like, there's That's so cool. many fun variations and like um, ways that you can really utilize that to your like to your advantage. Um, but yeah, very, uh, very, very spoiled. That's awesome. I'm pretty jealous of the gym that you train at. Looks really nice. You should be. 
<laughs> yeah. It looks like you have a really nice selection of machines to choose from. I, like I've been to a lot of gyms and I don't think I've ever been to a gym that has the variety and the caliber of equipment that this place does. And for, just for obviously the people that are listening, um, if you're ever in Melbourne, it's a gym in Noble Park called Interperformance. Um, their Instagram handle is literally like at into as in I N the number two performance. Um, if you go on there like Instagram, you have a look. Like it's all prime machines. They've got they've got monos. They've got comp benches. They've got combos. They've got a bloody CrossFit gym in the gym. Mm. They've got like an indoor, I think, hundred and ten or one hundred and twenty meter track. They've got a full S&C area where it's got all the power cages and cable attachments. They've got every bloody barbell you could think of. They've got dumbbells, I think. Like, they've got the Watson dumbbells up to, like, 80 kilos, I think it is. Are they the one with the fat handles too? Uh, no, these are just the normal handles. They do have fat grips on some of the lighter weight ones, which is cool. Um, they've got Prime machines. They've got Atlantis stuff. They've got Nautilus stuff, like, you name it, they've got it. Nice. Um, they've also got like a full like martial arts and MMA gym on another like section next door. They're in the process of building in like a recovery center as well. Like it's yeah, it's everything. wild. Yeah. I often look at it and like, that's nice. But in saying that, I'm also super grateful to have access to the facility that I train at as well. Oh yeah. Having having trained in a commercial gym for a while prior to that. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm super grateful. I, I tell the guys all the time now, I'm super grateful to be here and have access to this specialty equipment every single day at our fingertips. I think a lot of people take that for granted, you know? A hundred percent they do. And that's like, I mean, even when I first moved up, um, going from training at like pro raw gym, for example, to training in a commercial gym, I was like, like, this is difficult. Yeah. But it, it well, also made me very grateful for the time I did have in a gym like Pro Raw, and it obviously makes me incredibly grateful now having the access that I do. Um, But, yeah, like, it's just – it's one of those things where you go, like, sometimes, like, how does the, how does the scale balance? I always think it's interesting seeing seeing or hearing the people – say oh we need more we need more of this or we need more of that or i want more i want more alico equipment in here and i'm like man <laughs> you should be grateful for what you have because let me tell you this is a shitload better than trying to squat out of a commercial gym squat rack that's too narrow <laughs> i remember the conversation you and i had one day when you were wrapping my knees and you got there after I'd done all my warm ups and I'd done a few, a few sets, and you got there for my top set. My hands were bleeding. And you're like, dude, what happened to your hands? I was like, oh, it's just, my fingers just get jammed on the, <laughs> the hooks every time I re rack it because like the, the the cage is too narrow; it can't go any wider. And I yeah. already had I already had two fingers dropped off, and it would just jam this one every time and just, just piss Pants. out blood. So yeah, it was it was hectic. So. But I think it's also the thing where like a lot of people sit there and go, oh, well, we want this, we want that. And it's like, these people have no idea how much gym shit costs. 
Yeah, well, especially that specialty stuff. It's not cheap. Like, when you look at the costs of, like, an Alico combo rack, an Alico power bar, and a Alico calibrated plate set, like, that ain't cheap. No. Like, that's not like, oh, I'm just going to go down the down the road and pay two grand and get it. Like, you're looking at, you know, five figures for that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm super lucky to be in the gym that I'm in. We've got four monos. Yep. Uh, five deadlift platforms, four, four comp benches, another four cages, power racks. Um, yeah, it's a bunch of machines and stuff. So everything you need. It's, it's pretty good. It's a nice space. It's the best gym I've trained at regularly. In, I think in as well for like for what you guys have up that way, it is miles in front of everything else. It's not even close. Yeah. It's not even close, which is cool. Uh yeah, cool. So I did squats how's today. Your, how's your weekend training and stuff been? Because obviously we touched on mine, we haven't really touched on yours yet. We haven't. Um my week last week was good. I finished up the block last week um, with a few a few good lifts. I did um, the second last week of the block. I did two forty for three on the pause deficit deadlifts, um, and then I was I said on the last podcast I was going to go I was going to load two sixty, yep, um, for a triple, which I very much contemplated all the way up until. The, the moment of truth that was going to be the plan. Yeah. Um, but I actually decided against it and decided to, to go 240 again, but try and get five reps instead of three. Yeah. Um, which I did. And I was super happy about it. If the, even the three reps that I did the previous week weren't the cleanest three reps, but the five that I did this week were five really, really solid reps. So I was super happy with that. Um, and then for the oh for the the Zercha good morning, um, I did an AMRAP on that one on my last set of those, and that was that was a whole different type of torture. You're welcome. Yeah. Dude, you know what I found with that was when I was doing that AMRAP set, if you go back and look at the video, you'll notice that throughout the set, my torso just slowly becomes more and more flexed just ever so slightly and it mm. was like it was like pulling me into flexion and the more that that was happening obviously the more that's just like compressing down on everything and I, I couldn't get more air in so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take a breath and I'll brace and then I'll do some reps and I'll like and then I'll go to brace again I'm like fuck that's only like 80% of what I got last time and then I would like crunch down a little bit more because I didn't have that that trunk stability from the from the breath, and then I was like, yeah. do some more reps, and then I'd and then I'd be like, shit, that's only eighty percent of the eighty percent, and I was like, slowly getting less and less, and I was I was definitely getting fatigued. But you'll notice on the video, I come up, I think it was on like rep, I think I did fifteen reps, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. So on the second last rep, I come up, I'm like. And I take a breath and I was like, as I breathed and braced in my brain, I was like, 
I'm going to go for three more. And that should, that should have me pretty close to fail. But the breath that I took because I was so compressed was like literally almost non-existent. <laughs> and I took the breath. I was like, holy fuck, that was zero oxygen. And mm -hmm. I went down. And then as I started to come back up, everything just started to go black. And I'm like, yeah. oh, where's the rack? And I'm like trying to, trying to get it back in the hooks before I pass out because it was going black so quick. Yeah. Um, it's a fun is, feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it was, that was actually probably my favorite set of the whole week. And then yeah. um, I squatted. And when I went into the gym this week to squat, I just really didn't feel like wrapping my knees. Yep. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I literally said to Em before I left, I was like, oh, I have squats today. I don't really want to wrap my knees. Um, I usually love doing that, but I just couldn't be bothered. So when I turned up, I decided that I was going to just squat in sleeves. And then I was squatting to a, a box with a, a thing on top of it which was a hard box, um, but that box was actually being used for a picnic table for dolls in for a, a child that was in the gym. So I couldn't use the box. So I decided to go and grab some soft like crash pads that the strong men use to drop their logs on. And I stacked those up. I was like, oh, I guess it's going to be a soft box today. And then my warm-ups were feeling good. And then... As it got heavier, I was sinking more and more into the box, obviously, because it's more weight on the box, right? So as this is happening, I'm like, oh, man, this is only going to get worse as this load gets higher. Um, so I decided to do the same weight that I did last week or the prior week, but in sleeves um, to a soft box. And by the time I got to the top set, which was 175, the box sunk like pretty far below parallel yeah um which was good and i was really happy that i could do it but as a result of that um the next day my hips were like, pretty unhappy bit tight bit jacked up adductors were like not loving life um and so i decided not to bench on that day because mm -hmm. um, i just i honestly just didn't feel up to it so i just did some like I guess like rehab type work and just did some lap work and some ab work and some light adductor work and just got things moving a little bit so that I could squat again today, which I did. Yeah. So I didn't get to do the 170 for three, which I wanted, um, but I'm okay with it because I think it was a smart decision. Good. Yeah. And then today I went in this morning at 4.30 a.m., I noticed you were in there ghastly early. Ghastly early. Anyone that knows me knows I'm not a morning person. Like if you talk to me before 1 p.m., that's a different Nick to afternoon. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> that's a very different Nick to afternoon Nick. So, yeah. Um, I've just. What made you go in at 4.30? Well, it's funny because everyone knows I hate mornings, so I've had multiple DMs today asking me that exact question. And it just come down to the fact that that's, that's pretty much I've decided that that's going to have to be my training time moving forward just mm -hmm. with the workload that I have at the moment. 
um, with my commitments to my coaching business, to my with my commitments to my face-to-face clients, with my commitments that I've uh, enrolled in full-time university as well. And I want to do well in that. I'm not, I don't want to just half-ass it. So I need to allow sufficient time for study and to learn how to write papers and all of those types of things. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's probably going to take some time. Um, So I've just decided that I need to get my training done early in the day when there's one, no distractions and two, before I sit down and kind of go into an autistic spiral of hyper-focusing on things and then you would never (laughs) and then not be able to to stop something unless it's fully completed to go and train um and if i do then that just like flares up crazy amounts of anxiety and feeling like things are left undone and I, i can't do that so if i start something i have to finish it so i figure if i train at 4 30 in the morning i can then come home it's funny enough like M gets up at 4 a.m every morning anyway yeah that's her like prime brain function zone so she gets up that early and that's when she creates most of her content so my new schedule will look like i'll get up at the same time as her have a cold shower to wake me up go to the gym gross but gorgeous at the same time Mm. go to the gym train and then because i've also reduced um my training this block to be more of like a bare bare minimum or like minimum effective dose style of training. Um, I should be in and out quick enough to when I can come home, have breakfast with them, and then we can start our work day from there and fit everything in, hopefully. Nice. Yeah, and it worked really well today. That's like, and it's always the fun part, like when you do try like a new, either new training time or a new training approach, it's like, try it see how it goes like if it fits in well with your day-to-day lifestyle it's like well yeah like this is manageable you're going to have better like um accountability and ability to how to go and like yeah i know i can go and hit my session i'm in and out no distractions done yeah and because the gym was empty um it was me and one other guy in there he had his headphones in so i literally was able to just train do my time dress periods focus on what i had to do and not be in work mode when when you train at the gym that you work at you, you're kind of always in work oh, mode and if yeah. someone asks you a question you don't want to be rude you, you want to answer them you want to help them if you see someone that needs help that maybe doesn't even know they need help I, I generally am the type of person to go over and be like hey do you mind if I give you a few suggestions and help you out here so spotting loading talking all of those things just tends to consume the session and i was finding that i was having to skip a whole bunch of stuff to leave on time and i was really unhappy yeah. about that so I how long did your session take this morning uh by the time i when i got started it took an hour and a half yep and that included a toilet break so realistically it was like a 45 minute session <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i think it took a bit it took about an hour an hour 15 yeah um and that was also sitting down with time dress periods um, and posting like the sets um, to my story in between the sets as well. So yeah, yeah, it was quick. It was nice. It was efficient. Um, 
I, I really enjoyed it. So I did. Nice. Um, I did the. I did the drill that I did the other day for. The um. The names escaping me at the moment. As in, like the foam roller into yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the split stance, um, like RDL. RDL with the rotation, yep. um, and I put that foam roller against the inside of the knee and against the the wall there, so that I knew that like that was a good gauge that I was keeping that front leg straight and not like rotating out. Though so I really wanted to like get into internal rotation on that front stance leg, so I find sometimes if I don't have that there, I'll just subconsciously like externally rotate that front leg and shy away from internal rotation. So yeah. if I keep I keep that there, I know I have to stay there, otherwise the thing's going to fall off the wall. Yeah. Um, so I did that to start with. That was really nice. Uh, and then I did the the high hold Jefferson split squats that I've been doing, which I really like those, but I increased it from 15 seconds to 30 seconds and reduced mm -hmm. it from six sets to three sets. So the same amount of like total isometric time but just broken up into three longer isometric holds. Yep. And then I, from there, I did that floating front foot split squat. That How are you finding those? That we that we posted and spoke about on the last episode. Yep. Oh, man, I, I liked them. I did them just with body weight today. Uh, and I did three, three times 12 each leg with body weight. Um, obviously my, my bad knee is significantly worse than my good leg. Yeah. Um, but the difference wasn't as big as what I expected it to be. And I could still actually do it on my bad leg, which was a, a huge surprise to me because you've seen me in the past. There's, there's times <laughs> in my life, my recent life where I, there's not a hope in fucking hell. I would have been able to do anything close to that on that leg. I'm going to film some progressions for those this week because um, there are some fucking brutal progressions that we can work with. Yeah, I bet. I think the main progression, obviously, well, the only progression that I'm going to work with in this block is just adding some load to them, um, which I'm going to like, do. Sort of the progressions are like different loading patterns Yeah, cool. in terms of how to make it like really challenging without having to go like bonkers with load. Yeah, sick. And then from there, front squats. Yep. Which is the first time I've done front squats since... <laughs> bless you. Um, since football days. Yep. How long ago was that? Mm, I've probably done last... I've probably last done front squats when I was 19. It's like a good like 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, probably what's I'm 38 in May. Yeah, so like nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, so a while. Um, and I didn't, I, I mean, I'm not the strongest front squatter in the world yet, but I exceeded my expectations on those, which was good. Um, I had no idea where I would be at with them just because I haven't done them. So I had no weight recorded to do today mm -hmm. i just i just wanted it to feel a certain way um yeah and i thought maybe i would get to around 70 kilos 
for that amount of effort that I wanted to exert, but I got up to a hundred. So pretty happy with that. Nice. Um, yeah. And then I just did a super set of hamstring curls and nine degree um, hip extension, mm -hmm. which was pretty brutal. And yep. then I did some um, Copenhagen adductions. Very good. Yeah. Which is the first time I've actually done those dynamically instead of just like a Copenhagen plank. Yeah. Yep. So that's a nice progression on those two. Happy days. Yeah. So it was a really good session. Um, and I've decided that I want to front squat 220 this year. Nice. So yeah, that's gonna be my one of my goals this year is to really progress that front squad as much as possible. Uh there's a lot I need to work on, but I, I think it'll happen pretty quickly. I look forward to seeing it. Cool. So speaking of squats, I feel like yep. that's a nice little segue into today's main topic Talk. that we after like an hour and a quarter of talking shit. <laughs> you know what? I've actually had, this is this is just the way it's going to go. So I feel like yeah. the disclaimer should be on almost every episode is if you want to get to the actual topic, skip to like an hour. Maybe we should find like a, um, like how far into the actual episode, like once we like finish recording, go like, you know, the first hour and 15 minutes is just like our weekly recap. If you want to, like, you know, well, obviously today's topic is squats. Like, if you want to get to squats, like, skip forward to the timestamp of X, Y, and Z, and that's when we start talking about the topic. Yeah. You just want to create more work for me to timestamp all the episodes. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to give you something. To do. <laughs> Thanks, <man. laughs> Yeah, actually, it's not a bad idea. I probably should timestamp the episodes, but I won't timestamp everything. I'll just do, like... Like, when we actually start talking about, like, our topic. Yeah. But I think I think most people are interested in just listening to us talk. To be honest, well, fuck. I mean, it can be like a lucky dip. Like there'll be some weeks where we go straight into it. There'll be a, a week where we're like, yeah, the topic was meant to be X, Y, and Z, but we didn't actually talk about that at all. So this week was like, maybe we'll have like take two next week. <laughs> I had um, I had one person say, oh, "I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna listen to the podcast on night shifts." before we released the first episode and I said, oh yeah, man, that's perfect because it'll probably consume an entire night shift. Um, did you just thumbs up me? <laughs> no, that, I just want that pop up <laughs> on your screen. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here. <laughs> uh, I was like, thanks, mate. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> Good work, having a conversation. <laughs> Yeah, so that'll it'll probably consume an entire night shift, so it'll be perfect for you because we can definitely talk. That's that's one thing we know how to do. Oh yeah. And then he listened to the first episode and um tagged us in this in the story share. And I just responded and said, What'd you think, mate? And he said, I'm just thinking that when you said you guys can definitely talk, you weren't lying. <laughs> Dude, could you imagine how dangerous it would be if we actually like were filming this in person every week? And it was like, oh, like maybe let's have like a bottle of wine or something like that while we're filming tonight. Mm. We would we'd film like six hour long episodes. Yeah, we could break it up. We could do the whole year in one sitting. Oh, easily. It's like we could do a, a year's worth of content in a day. Yeah, the quality of the content would be questionable, but we could definitely yeah. get through it. 
this is this is about quantity, not quality, Nick. <laughs> and I guess I guess um, you know, some people might like shit quality content. They might some not be shit. Would. Some people would. Some of the reels you send me would suggest that maybe you do. Hey, the shit that I send you is fucking quality, mate. Like, (laughs) some of it is. Some of the ones over the last couple of days were very borderline. (laughs) Some of the ones, (laughs) but like, you know, when you open up your phone, you're like, Ben has sent you 47 reels. Yeah, you give me something on. Ah, shit. Yeah, that generally happens on. A Monday, yeah. when I when I spend the entire day doing check ins, and yeah, then you don't I, give me attention. I don't go on my phone, and then I go <laughs> on my phone. I can see it buzzing in the corner, and then I go on it, and it's literally like Ben, sixty five notifications, <laughs> <laughs> and then it also happens on Friday nights when I'm yeah. on date night because <laughs> I don't um I don't look at my phone there, so I'll get I'll back on my phone. Them to M instead. Yeah, yeah. And then like, and Nick's not paying me attention. Yeah. They're the two times that it happens the most. Yeah. Um, it's good times. When you neglect me, Nick. I always look forward to the the giggles though. When I see that many notifications, I know it's gonna be a, a good solid session of giggles. Sometimes I just go down like a real hole and I'm like I get fucking sucked in and I will literally spend like two hours just been like Yep, that's funny shit, Nick. Yep, that's fucking funny shit. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's also funny, like, obviously we know the Instagram algorithm shows us, <laughs> like, what we're reacting to or what we're watching or what we're sending, etc. So I can always tell what mood you're in by the reels that I'm getting sent by you because <laughs> it'll start with one and then it'll be, like, 15 and they just progressively go down certain rabbit holes. Well, like, for example, like the whole like Stephen Hawking expose that came out the other day, pretty much like 90% of the reels that come up now are just like reels that just go fucking dark with that. Yeah. And I'm like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. I've been getting a ton of those from you. Yeah. So the, the topic is squats. So. Yes. I thought we could go through what 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 is what's a squat? What is a squat? What would your definition be? Nice. Or do you want me to start? Yeah, I asked you. So I would consider a squat to be lowering of the body through flexion of the ankle, knee, and hip, mm-hmm. and then standing back up through extension of the ankle, knee, and hip. Mm-hmm. I feel like from an anatomical perspective, that's probably the because again, like you could sit there and be like, oh well, you will you, 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 you squat down and then you you stand back up. And I hate using the name of something in the definition of something. So that's where I'm like, if we're obviously looking at it from a most um, basic of terms, I would say it's lowering the body down by a flexion of the ankle, knee, and hip. Mm-hmm. And then standing up by your extension of the ankle, knee, and hip. Yeah. So essentially, in layman's terms, you're bending your knees. Yep. And sitting down. And sitting and then, down. And, and then standing, standing back up. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, and if you, 
the way I like to explain it to people as well is if you want to make something more squatty, you can imagine your hips. So if you if you imagine your hips in a box, um, your hips are going to go down further than they go back generally. And then as opposed to a hinge, they're going to go back further than they go down generally. In both of those movements, they, the hips go both down and back just to mm -hmm. vary, varying degrees based on which one you're doing. Yeah. What would your, obviously you just sort of have your definition. Yeah. Um, obviously like, I think for the nature of what our podcast is as well, I think it's important to kind of define there is a difference between like a powerlifting squat, yes, a strength sports squat and an athletic development squat. Mm -hmm. um, obviously like, you know, a powerlifting squat, has genuine requirements that it needs to hit mm -hmm. um, in order to be deemed, you know, an efficient or a, an effective squat on the platform. And obviously for the most part, that's like starting with the knees and the hips lock, lowering down until the hip crease is below the top of the knee and then standing back up until both the knees and the hips are locked as well. Yep. Um, obviously, like if we're looking at strength sports squats, like, that could be high bar squats. That could be front squats. That could be overhead squats. They're all going to have their different requirements. But I would generally say for strength sports squats compared to powerlifting squats, I think you're probably going to see more range of motion in those squats um, and probably more like typical squat patterns rather than like powerlifting squat, which has its own unique profile. Um, and then obviously looking at something like a sports performance squat, you might see a fair bit of quarter squatting for more like power output rather than is that to depth. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I think that's an extremely important determination to make or differential to, to point out because what I see quite often um, is powerlifters. Squatting high. <laughs> <laughs> yes i do see that quite often but also what i see is powerlifters um kind of going down this road of thinking that the way powerlifters squat is the only way to squat or it's the best way to squat for every situation and any squat that's not a powerlifting squat or a powerlifting style squat is incorrect under any circumstances so this kind of like ties back into something we were sort of talking about a little bit earlier in terms of like, you know, the person who goes, I'm going to be a powerlifting coach. And it's the cliche saying of like, if your only tool is the hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really important like distinction for us to make in terms of going as a good coach is knowing when I'm going to go, hey, I really want you to go down this avenue of a really traditional powerlifting style of squat. And then going, you know what? I actually want to bring you into more of a strength sports style squatting and then going, hmm, our application doesn't really need to be here or here. We can go over into more of the athletic development realm where we can work on like force production and, you know, just pure power rather than going, was it the comp standard? Does it do this? Does it do that? Have we met these requirements? And I think knowing when to apply each of those variations or each of those approaches is 
imperative to being successful with your athlete. I completely agree. So let's circle back and cover a, a powerlifting squat. So there's certain things that you mentioned that that need to happen during a squat in a powerlifting competition for that squat to be deemed a, a good squat or a successful lift. But there's yep. also there's also things that powerlifters do with their squat that that put them that put them in a better position to lift and shift the most amount of load through the range of motion that they are required to hit to get a good lift. So what would some of those things be? So obviously I think first and foremost, the main thing that we're looking at obviously for a powerlifting squat is someone hitting depth. And obviously rule book has a similar definition in terms of like the, the hip crease must be below the top of the knee. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously a rule book might say something, but how it's enforced in competition often, a, you know, can be different things. Um, but for the most part, what I'm always going to be looking at for an athlete in terms of figuring out like what bar position we're going to go like, regardless of what all the other factors are, which are all going to be determined by like the individual and their biomechanics and how they move, is realistically in the bottom position, I'm going to want that bar pretty close to being overlifted. Mm-hmm. And as long as they can do that and they can get the hip in the position that we want it to be in to meet the requirements of competition, fucking happy days. Yep. Like, the one thing that I do, and this is kind of a hill that I will die on a little bit, is the utilization of general strength preparation prior to a powerlifting competition. And I'll use a great example is I've got one of my girls that I coach at the moment, and her and I've been working together for, for some time now, and for probably two years, we have almost exclusively high bar squatted. Mm-hmm. She's strong. Like she can score at 125, like 67 drug free in sleeves. Um, trying a little bit of like some low bar positioning, but I'm like, I want to make sure that she actually knows how to push through her quads. I want to make sure that she knows how to like keep her upper back tight so that when she does hit a sticking point in her squat, she doesn't get really pinched forward and she can keep everything in her upper back tight so she can keep pushing up into that bar. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now going into slightly more forward leaning, but she is trying on some low bar stuff. But the requirements of those positions are unfamiliar to her. Mm-hmm. But knowing that we've got the leg strength to do this easily, knowing that we have the upper back strength to do this, it's now a matter of like getting her hips a little more conditioned to the positions that they're in versus what they were normally in with a high bar squat. Yeah, perfect. I think this is, yeah. So, like, obviously, like, you know, if we are looking at, a typical power squat, it's going to be a low bar squat. Yeah, perfect. And that's kind of what I was getting at is that that low bar position is uh, very, very much like based in powerlifting. Yeah. And when you adopt, adopt that low bar position, what what then is the effects downstream that we can see in the squat because of that low bar position? As in like, effects in terms of like what are we going to see in differences and changes of like positioning yeah so positionally so, so for example t- like so typically 
typically is a very so, good way to put it because it's not always, but typically with that low bar position, we're going to be a little bit more, lean. bit more of a forward lean, a little bit more hingy at the hips. Yep. And generally speaking, a little bit more of a vertical shin angle. Yeah. So, so typically a little bit less knee flexion, a little bit more hip hingy, um, a little bit harder to go much below that parallel. Yeah. And this is obviously because of that position. So that's yeah, why and this I, is I, an area that I, I really like to like put a lot of emphasis in terms of going just because you are competing in powerlifting doesn't mean you have to low bar squat. Like no. for the, the great example I love it's like obviously I don't want to be the guy who's like, oh well, John Hack doesn't low bar squat. Like he doesn't. He doesn't, and he's the greatest of our current generation. Like fucking he's a freak. But he's he's but, definitely in the conversation of greatest of all time. Oh fucking earth he is. Absolutely. Like he goes what a thousand plus at 90 kilos. Like that's insane. Yeah, he's in that conversation for sure. Absolutely. But what I, I look at is I'm like, if for example, someone is low bar squatting and all they're complaining about afterwards is how jacked up their elbows are because their shoulders are shocking. It's like that position is trying to tell you that like you're not ready for it or that you're, you're not prepped for it properly. So it's like, if you went to a high bar position, you're probably still going to have a pretty bloody big squat, but your body's going to be a lot less beat up and you're probably going to be a better powerlifter by utilizing a slightly different approach until you can fix the shoulders, if you can actually fix them. Yeah, and I've, this is why it's so case-dependent as well because in a situation like that, if if you are so jacked up from that low bar position, that could be limiting the amount of squatting that you could be doing. It could be limiting the amount of volume that you're doing per session. And that then could obviously be limiting your progress. So yeah, sure, it might be a stronger position for you down the track, but if if you're not ready for it now, it could actually be the thing that's limiting, yeah, holding you back. And if you were to then move to a position that you are ready for at the moment, you could then push more volume and put put more kilos on your squat. So I think it's like, definitely beneficial to identify where you're at and what you're capable of at the moment. And then if you if you are capable of where you want to be, identifying what you need to do to get there and actually then doing that. Like the example that people always use as well, being like, oh, well, low bar is a better, is a stronger squatting variation. Like I don't always agree with that because I'm always like, look at some of the best weightlifters in the world. Like those guys move fucking ridiculous weight to depth and bloody fast. Yeah, very fast and very explosive. Like there's I guess, a, a Japanese lifter, I think his name's like Toshiko or something like that. I'll send you the video a little bit later, but I'm pretty sure he's only like an 84 and 85 kilo lifter. And he's got 320 in sleeves. Mm. Like and it, obviously that's not necessarily like up there with like the best powerlifters in the world. But when you're looking at like a guy who high bar squats in sleeves, not as his actual sport, but pretty much as an accessory, it's like, that's insane. Yeah, and there'll always be the argument of, well, if he's that strong like that. Could he be stronger if he went low bar? Could he be stronger if he went low bar and spent time doing that? And I guess we, we won't ever know unless we switch over. But I do agree that not every position is suitable 
to every person. And I think that's where a lot of people fall in the trap of trying to inform trial and error. <laughs> yeah, trying to, I mean, maybe get everyone to move the same way or, or coach everyone the same way or even lifters trying to look at you know their favorite lifter and emulate them. Like we spoke in well, probably both episodes, we speak about Joe a lot. Um, we spoke in one of the episodes about how much I love Joe as a powerlifter and yeah. how much I love Joe's squats and I love watching him squat. I just, I love everything about his squat. Um, and there's also another lifter, um, Big Zach from Queensland, who I just, I, I he love. has a fucking beautiful squat though. Oh, like that man is built squatting it's unbelievable and i tell him in at every opportunity that i get how much i love his squat i just i love watching him squat and he's a champion to go along with it um but if yeah. i tried to squat like those guys it would be a disaster yeah I, I'm, I'm the complete opposite to both of them in almost every possible way yeah um so because of that i have to move differently yeah, but that's the thing is like you guys can probably all work with the same principles, but the application is going to be unique to like your biomechanics and how you move and, and what happens with your like expression of technique. Like there are so many contributing factors as to how someone's going to squat and what their squat's going to look like. Trying to like trying to sit there and go, oh, well, every squat should look like X, Y, and Z. Frankly, I, I feel like that is a bit of a a cop out. Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, like I've trained a lot of people over the last decade and a bit, and you know, I, I went through a, a phase where I was like, everyone needs to do X, Y, and Z because this is the best way to lift, and and this is just what everyone needs to do. And there are just some people who can't. Like, and this is where, like, it comes back to, like, you know, wanting to help people. It's, like, those are the people where it's, like, cool. Like, you need to go into your your, your little bag of tricks and be, like, what other approaches can I utilize with this person to get them the outcome that they're after? Like, you know, it might be that they have to do a high bar squat. It might be that they have to move to a more narrow stance with a slightly different toe angle or whatever it might be to hit positions that feel good. Like they may not be as top end strong immediately, but it's like, when do we ever switch to a new technique and go bang, I just added, you know, 30 kilos to this lift and my body felt great doing it. Like. Yeah. Every time you, every time I've ever changed technique, it doesn't feel good right away. It takes time. And like when people change what they're doing every like two or three weeks because like, oh, it just doesn't feel good. It's like, yeah, because you're not giving it enough time to actually adapt and you're rushing the load far too quickly. Like it needs time to, to have exposure, to allow that adaptation to facilitate so that you can actually gauge like, well, maybe it's been 10 weeks of me playing with this technique. Does it feel any different or does it feel shit still? Because I'm like, if it still feels shit after, you know, say a dozen sessions of that approach, it's like then maybe you can sit there and go, 
maybe we need to adjust. But this is also where I look at it and I go, well, like, do you actually have like the orthopedic profiles to try and hit the positions that you're after? Like, you know, do you have enough internal rotation at the hip to actually get into the position that you're trying to get into? Do you have enough tibial rotation? Like all of these things that are going to contribute to someone's bottom position. It's like, are you trying to force your, like your square into a circle hole just because you think that's what you should be doing? Or are you just trying to go, oh, well, fuck it. Like, you know, this person on Instagram does it this way. So I'm going to fucking do it that way too. And then you end up getting all busted up and you're like, well, why am I fucking... I told you I was going to rant tonight, but fuck me, man. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's perfect. And what I'm going to do is, while we're on the subject of changing technique, is I'll jump to one of the questions that we got because I think it's a really valid time to bring it up, is I'll read you the question okay. and then you can kind of circle back around to what you're saying about um, changing technique and then giving it some time to feel good because I think it'll be valid, but then you can add anything else that you want as well. But... The question was with squats, uh, let's look at a regular comp squat. Right now, I'm going through two different areas of my squat. Went from a close stance, toes pointed out, to now a wider stance, but toes pointed more forward. I'm finding I'm getting more knee forward movement and less load on the hips. How do I know which stance or style is best for me? I've only been using the toe forward wider stance for three weeks and it feels better in some ways. Should I stick with it or go back to how I would normally squat? What I'm trying to say is at what point do you know if the style of technique works for you? So first and foremost, I think getting a good assessment done on your, on your hips and like assessing the the hip capsule and like in terms of like sorry the hip socket and how much range it's actually got access to is a really good starting point because you might be sitting there going, I'm trying to do a really wide squat, but I don't actually have that degree of like flexion in that much abduction. Like for anyone who is kind of um, curious is like a really good screening exercise to do, and this is probably something you need to do with uh like with like a training partner or a coach or whatever it is, it's the Faber test. So that's flexion, abduction, external rotation. That is a phenomenal screening drill to run someone through to kind of gauge how much their hip actually moves. Mm -hmm. um, as far as like knowing how, like how long to give it, I'll again circle back to what I sort of said earlier. And like, if you're like, oh, well, it's been three weeks and I'm not sure. It's like, well, no shit. Like, you, like if you get into a new relationship, you don't really know after three weeks whether the person you're going to marry or not. Like things take time to develop and things take time for you to go, well, I kind of need to like navigate my way through the reads and kind of figure out what's what, where I am, how things, like if it's feeling good and you're like, yep, there's no immediate risks. Um, things are feeling good. My joints aren't pulling up sore afterwards. It's probably indicative that like you're on the right path but that path is probably going to have to change a little bit. Again, this is where if like we are working with overall principles rather than specifics, like you're sitting there going, if you're going, well, I'm doing a, a wider, more toe pointed, you might find it's like, oh, well, if I'm going wider, like it feels good. But if I open the toe up slightly, that feels better. Mm -hmm. Might find that, oh, the, the feet being wide feels good, but something still feels a little bit, 
eh, I'm not sure. You might just bring it in an inch and you mm -hmm. go, fuck, that feels so much better. Again, like this is where if we haven't assessed something and if we're not measuring something, we can't manage it. Yeah, and it's really hard to give super specific advice like that without knowing all of those details. I think it would also depend on the competition timeline as well and whereabouts you are within that. If you're if you're eight weeks out from a comp, you're not changing shit. No, and even if even if you do change something and it feels better at a at a, you know just before prep, before things are really heavy, I would yeah. probably still hazard against changing that soon and then going straight into a prep because you know challenges and breakdown in positions usually aren't going to rare or show themselves until higher percentages anyway and if you haven't exposed yourself to those positions under those higher percentage loads chances are shit could go bad pretty quickly yeah um, and you don't you don't even know what the issues are going to be whereas with the the style that you've been using or the technique that you've been using You've exposed yourself to those positions. You've done however many preps in those positions. You've competed in those positions. You've used high loads in those positions. Your body's used to it. Even if it might not be the perfect way for you, it's still a way that has been successful enough that you've gone through preps and competed unscathed. I would probably choose to stick with that in a prep situation. And then when you have a longer timeline, that's when you could play around with things because you're not going to know like you said, you're not going to know straight off the bat and it's going to take a little bit of trial and error. And what feels good one week, you might come in a week later and it feels like absolute garbage. Whereas if yep. you have a technique that's been tried and true for a decent amount of time, chances are that's going to be the most consistent position for you. And in a prep, that's really the main thing we're looking for is consistency. Like, for example, I've tried... Um, you know, like heels versus flats for like preps before. And I've done a prep, the entire prep, I've done it in like in flats. And I squatted 20 kilos less than my best. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, eh, I'm like, it didn't feel, it didn't feel confident for me. Like it felt, I was like, I just felt unstable. I was like, eh, I don't really feel settled enough to want to push this any heavier. Whereas when I go back to like being in like a heeled shoe with a nice tight wrap on, I'm like, oh, like daddy is home. <laughs> yeah. And I think obviously there are situations where you're going to change things and that's fine. But I'll use a great example of my squat during yep. my last prep. I've squatted the same way for a good while. I was very confident in that position uh, until I tore my adductor. Mm -hmm. And the the way I squatted was very adductor heavy. It was, it's very hingy. I've got big, long legs, pretty wide stance, low bar position, lots of adductor. Because the adductor was compromised, I made the decision on comp day in the warm-up room to adopt a slightly higher bar position so that I could take some of the load off the adductor. Uh, I didn't go from low to high. I went from low to slightly less low. Yeah. So I went from just, just on the rear delt to just sitting on above the rear delt. 
So like a very minor change, it did take some load off the adductor, but what it also did is it placed that load elsewhere, which I was able to get through the comp and squat a, a comp PB, which I'm extremely proud of. But I do actually think that that's a pretty big contributing factor to how fucked my knee was after that. Absolutely. Like your knee wouldn't be used to taking the amount of load that it would have taken on the day, especially given that you fucking push for a comp PB. <laughs> yeah, and you like, can and you can see that in the squad. If you watch the video, I've posted the video a few times on my Instagram. You can see that when I'm coming out of the hole, my left, my left, well, both both knees, but both predominantly my left knee internally rotate and start to to cave a little bit into a little bit of valgus and that is indicative of a loss of torque at the hip and a loss of pelvic stability showing downstream and i know that that happened because it felt like it i just pushed through anyway but i'm i'm a big believer in that's a big contributing factor to how fucked my knee was i just couldn't control my pelvis through that new position under that load i was able to just muscle through it but it wasn't a nice controlled pretty lift by any stretch of the imagination and but this is i think the other kind of the other end of the spectrum as well as like when you're pushing a top end comp squat it won't always be a pretty looking squat like you are literally putting a 100 effort on the platform there is a higher chance i'm not going to say there is bound to be because i'm like there are some people who execute their top end squats perfectly but there is a much higher chance that there's going to be a potential for breakdown like especially if you do take the the sub max approach in your prep and like let's say your last heavy session is like say a you know a 275 280 squat and then on on comp day you're like yep i'm i'm lined up for a 300 kilo squat like yep that the difference in top for prep versus what top is for comp like yes we want the adaptations to to help facilitate that change and we want enough confidence in our technique from the work that we've done here to sit there and go well it doesn't matter what you put on my back i know i'm going to hold position mm -hmm. but obviously then as weights get higher and higher and heavier and heavier the sort of the chance for a failure of technique increases exponentially so I think when we're kind of looking at it going, well, you know, because what was your heaviest squat in comp in comp prep for that one there where you squatted the 292? Yeah, so that's what I was just going to say is I think a big part of the breakdown came from the position being new because the my comp my heaviest comp squat that prep was 300. Yep. And that was five weeks out. And the 300 five weeks out, looked significantly better more controlled and more powerful than the 292 yeah there's a, there's a few factors obviously that went into that one of them being the week after that 300 kilo squad is when i tore my adductor four weeks out and then for the following four three weeks leading in i didn't squat anything over 70 kilos so i hadn't had a heavy exposure for a while and then i changed the position and that position hadn't had any heavy heavy exposures ever it's literally the first time i'd ever done it yeah so it felt really really good up until when it didn't 
And it didn't feel horrible because it was only such a minor change. But this is where I'm getting at is if you're making changes that aren't so minor, the the difference in how it feels is going to be greater. Like, obviously, we're not talking about bench at the moment, but I think it was the start of 2021, I ruptured the tendons in my pinky. You can kind of see my pinky finger doesn't extend properly. Mm-hmm. So, like, compare it to this one. Like, the I tore the tendon pretty much in the top end of the finger. Um, and I had been benching with my pinky finger on the knurling line. I was like, that just felt really, really strong for me. Mm-hmm. And I was just about to enter the peak for my bench. And I was like, fuck, fuck I can't bench there. I now have to move it out to bring finger. Not mm-hmm. a huge change, but enough of a change where it's like, it's, it's noticeable if I'd gone, yeah, but it's still close enough that it's within kind of the realms of you're kind of all right here. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, they ended up working well for me because I absolutely fucking smoked my PBs. <laughs> but if I'd gone pinky finger to index finger, that probably would have been too big of a jump. Yeah. I think we were talking about this um, last episode or potentially even episode one where we're like talking about one of your clients and you're like, yeah, like the main working set is like the the normal concrete that they're comfortable with and the back off is the concrete we want to eventually change them to and we work at like altering the volumes and the exposures over time to bring them to where we want them to be. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that whole same for any lift that we're looking at doing. Yep. I agree. Um, so that would be actually, you know, if I was to give a recommendation on changing yep. on changing squat stance, um, I wouldn't be able to say which one works best for that particular person, obviously, because we're not we're not there looking at it. Um, but what I would say is when you are changing a technique, I would let's say let's say squat, for example. I would look at doing so where you have a, a long enough timeline to play with it and then choose a variation as your primary squat that you can drive high output in still and then move your comp squat to your secondary squat and use that as your secondary squat so that you can drill position. Find a position that you want to try out. Try it out at loads that are not maximal but you're still driving output on your primary squat day. And then you might use like a secondary, a secondary movement, like a leg press to, to drive output after the, the, the trial position. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's what I would recommend doing. Um, and then just graded exposure throughout that time as well. Yeah. Cool. Uh, cool. Did you want to move on to the next question? We got heaps, so we may as well just roll through them. Yeah. I mean, like, Alan, we've been talking for a while already, so I reckon if we can move through them at a not a like crazy fast rate, but fast like enough. I mean, because we I feel like with some of the questions we did have, like I feel like we've already kind of touched on some of them a little bit. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, did you want to talk about well, knees over toes, we've kind of touched on that, but um, I think the question specifically was uh, knees over toes or arse to grass. So realistically, they'll probably end up being pretty similar. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I was going to say. It's it's basically the same thing. 
like if your objective is trying to train the knee to go over the toes as much as possible, you're probably going to be working with pretty intense heel elevation anyway, which is going to result in an after grass squat. If you have the mobility where you don't need to elevate the heels and you can squat after grass, your knee is going to be over the toe. So yeah. I, I would I would pretty much put them under the same kind of umbrella, just potentially different sections of the umbrella depending on semantics and all that kind of crap. Yeah, when I read that, I kind of thought if you if you do one, most of the time you're inevitably going to do the other one anyway. Because if you think about if you think about like a low bar comp squat, for example, a, a big reason to adopt the low bar position is to limit range yeah. through through that hinge pattern. So if you if you're hinging back, that's like the opposite to these over toes. And what that's yeah. actually doing is limiting your ability to go deeper, not enhancing it. So if you try and do that like really hingy squat, but also go ass to grass, um, man, if you can do that, that's pretty cool. But I don't think many people could. But you're probably also going to lose a lot of tension throughout the squat for the sake of range. Yeah. 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 So I think ones they're both just going to kind of happen at the same time. Yeah. Uh, benefits of safety bar squat over a back squat. Well, so this is where I am going to get a little bit like uh, nitpicky on the the language. The safety bar squat is still a back squat. Okay. <laughs> I, I know. So, like, so for questions, I, I agree with you. Language yeah. is important. Uh, what is it, Broderick? Language is important. That's language it. language matters. I think he says something like that. Yeah. So words, I guess words, like words matter. Like, words matter. I think it says words matter. That's his thing. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway. obviously, like the benefit of say like a safety basket over say a low basket, for example. One, your upper body is going to get beat up a whole lot less. Um, there's very little strain put on your shoulders, but there is a lot of emphasis placed on maintaining position a lot more i feel like you can bullshit your way through a low bar squat a little bit more mm -hmm. whereas i feel like if you lose position on a safety bar it's going to want to like I, the example i always use is like when you squat with a safety bar it's always going to shine a spotlight on the areas of your squat pattern where there's leaks in, in terms of technique and tension like yeah, if I you if you don't hold the brace you don't hold your pelvis like pelvic position like in and out of the squat you're more likely to want to see like as you're coming down, it's going to pinch you forward pretty heavily. Yep. Um, whereas I feel like in a squat, like I say, a low bar squat, it may not show up as much until you get to a higher weight. Whereas I feel like with a safety bar, it is one of those load limiting variations that we can use um, to a like really teach people how to like set the upper back in a nice strong position. So that when that bar's sitting there, it's like, if, if you're locked in here, like, it's just going to be a matter of like are your leg strong enough to push your way through this. Yep. Yeah. That's probably I, the main benefit I would find. Yeah. I really like it for, um, like you said, challenging the position. Yep. Um, I find it challenges the upper back and the brace quite a bit. Um, just with like how you said, wanting to pitch you forward. Um, you really have to, if you lose the upper back, it's, it's going to throw you. Um, yeah. I like it. I, I really like a safety bar with like a heel elevation, get a lot of knee flexion, 
really good for growing quads. Yeah. Um, and also, like, I just find it's probably just like, especially for like Gen Pop clients, that's probably like my my go to variation. Yeah, it's like, it's it's a lot easier to get under the bar. It's a lot less barrier to entry for a lot of people. Um, yeah. You know, we take it for granted that we can get under a bar and and get our hands back far enough to hold it. But there's a lot of people out there that can't do that. A lot for, of people for various reasons. Um, so a safety bar is a great option for for people like that. I also find that personally, I find that when I do, when I incorporate really heavy safety bars and then because of where the weight is positioned, where it's kind of like a little more forward over midline and it's wanting to pull me forward and I have to really focus on keeping that rigid torso, that, that proper brace and really good hip position. I then find when I transition back to like a lower bar position where the bar and the weight is more centered over my midline, it just feels a fuckload more stable. Like it almost, yeah. it almost feels like the weight isn't even there c compared to when it's on a safety bar. Cause it's, it's not wanting to throw me forward as much. Yeah. So just from a perception standpoint, I feel like that's a really nice benefit from it as well. Yeah, I'd agree. It's like that perception of stability. Yeah. But I mean, perception as well as integration, I feel. Yeah, true. Um, cool. So safety bar is good. While we're on the um, squat variations, uh, benefits or belt squat pros and cons. Uh, obviously one of the pros is very little to no upper body engagement and mm -hmm. it's pure output through the legs. Mm -hmm. Um, the only, like the only trouble I have with the belt one, this is the only con that I'm really going to talk about is for me, the, like the, the belt that you put around it always feels fucking uncomfortable. I can't seem to find a position where I'm like, it feels comfortable. Mm -hmm. I would rather, like if I was looking at a machine-based variation for output, I would much rather a hack squat or a pendulum squat. Yeah, me too. Definitely a hack squat or a pendulum squat or even a leg press. Leg press for me binds up my hips too much and I get real fucking tired and real creaky real quick, <laughs> whereas I need the freedom of like a pendulum or a hack squat to be able to train well, you're actually better moving through space a little bit and you can find those yeah. positions at work. Yeah. That just, again, like that probably comes back to like being a limitation of certain ranges within my hips. Mm -hmm. um, but I also look at it and I go, well, if I can train a pendulum or train a hack squat hard, I'm just going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I love both of those variations too. I don't mind the belt squat. Um, I, I, with the belt squat too, I think it really heavily depends on which belt squat you're using. Some are really good and some are really not so good. Um, so it depend it'll depend on that. Um, and it'll also depend on like like you said, how comfortable the belt is. I do yeah. I do like the fact that there's obviously no axial loading and, and it's like straight from the hips down. But like you are also find that the belts can like really like put people into like this funky, like excessive 
lumbar extension position sometimes. Because they're almost like trying to resist against the belt if it's sitting on their lower back a bit. Yeah, and then that's just going to like fuck their squat pattern a whole bunch and give them some hip issues and stuff. So like you, I'd rather, I'll, if I was programming it, I would much rather use a variation where it's like back supported, um, hip supported, and you can go through that like a hack squat or a pendulum or even yeah. a leg press personally. Yeah. Um, but they are good. Yes. It's not Time and place for them, for sure. Time and place, yeah. Uh, I, I do prefer them with a heel as well whenever I use yeah. them. Well, I have used belt squats in rehab phases before just to like alleviate a little bit of the tension through the hips because you get a, there's a little bit of, so like as you were saying, like, because there's no axial loading, it just takes a little bit of the pressure off. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it has to be very a very specific setup to facilitate the outcome that I'm trying to chase. Yeah, I would agree. Almost like everything. It's almost like yeah. every, it's almost like everything has context. No. <laughs> what a wild statement. Just trust the science, Nick. <laughs> just just do what the best do, because the best do. Exactly. Um Bulgarian split squats, need I say more? That's the next question. I love no. I love Bulgarian split squats. Fucking oath. Like I love that new I variation I've been playing with the last couple of weeks of like the Hatfield Bulgarians. My God. Uh, I'll I've eat got, those motherfuckers for breakfast. I've got that in my um program. They're delicious. But, yeah, that's on Thursday. I'm super uh yeah, Thursday. I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Um, yeah, I love Bulgarian split squats. I love loading them in all different ways. I've been known to give clients um, Zercher loaded Bulgarian split squats, to, mm-hmm. which are nice. They hate them at the time. They they yep. learn they learn to love them after a little while. I quite often will give um like um like uh, goblet split squats. Goblet squats are good. I like, I just, I really am a big fan of Bulgarian split squats. I like the contralaterally loaded, ipsilaterally loaded, safety bar loaded, Hatfield, Zercher, however you want. I'm a big fan. Same. What's your best ever Bulgarian split squat set? It's a very good question. I would probably say it's the Hatfields I did the other week where it was like 130 on my back for like comfortable sets of six. Yeah, that's but a good set. I I reckon if I was gonna if I was gonna go into a session like that, message you be like, hey Nick, how much do I hate myself today? <laughs> Which is I a scary reckon, message. Yeah, I reckon if I was going for like, if I really wanted to hurt myself in, in, like, obviously, like, a good way, I reckon, like, 150, maybe 160 for, like, eight reps would be, like, a I'm, – I'm doing this to to push really hard, yep. but I reckon I could do that. That would be a good set. There's a um a sprint cyclist. I can't remember where he's from. I'll, I'll find his, um, his profile. I'll send it to you. But I remember seeing – he did, I think it was like a double on his split squat with like 240 on his back. Yeah. 
That's intense. And I'm like, what, am I, what is wrong with this man? Like, he's but just done 240 for split squats for two reps. Like, that is wildly strong legs. But you look at his legs and his quads are like... Is that the cyclist? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. That's a that's such a good video. Yeah, it's insane. I referenced that. I was actually talking about that that not that long ago. I referenced that video quite a bit. I love I love that video. Yeah. The best split squat set I've ever done was actually at World Gym. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's on my Instagram if you scroll back a fair bit. Um, I believe it was in the vicinity. It was definitely a seventy kilo dumbbell, contralaterally yep. loaded, and I believe it was somewhere in the vicinity of like 14 to 16 reps yeah that's big but it's on it's on my instagram like you can you can see it it's it was a beast of a set and there was probably still another two or three reps there i just gave up because it was starting to really hurt um (laughs) but at that point i was just like i just don't know if i've got any more in me but looking back at the video there was there was probably a few more there that's my best ever set Nice. Yeah, I was a, and I actually did both. I matched it. Um, I did the first set on my bad leg, and then matched it with my good leg. Nice. Yeah, that was that was an awesome set. I'd like to do that. You know what I'd love to do? I'd love to do a Bulgarian split squat, safety bar loaded, mm-hmm. with like four reds. Yeah, that'd be fucking sick. Just not even for like for a proper set for like you know eight to twelve reps. Yeah, that'd be badass. Do it. <laughs> okay. um, Don't be pussy. <laughs> damn it! Got to do it now. Um, <laughs> Long term health benefits of heavy squats. Define heavy. Well, I think heavy is like challenging. Say like heavy would, I, I would, you know, 75% plus. So th- this is where I look and I go, if we're talking just in general, for like gen pop, it's obviously great for developing bone density mm-hmm. um, and obviously building enough strength so that as we age, we can do things like get up and down from like, where we need to be sitting and standing. Mm-hmm. As far as long-term health benefits of, say, like a 300-plus kilo squat, I don't know if there would actually be any. There's psychological health benefits for sure because I can tell you right now, oh, yeah. as someone who has squatted 300, speaking to someone who hasn't squatted 300, no matter what you say, I always feel superior to you and I can always just fall back on, well, yep, I squat 300. But know. I squat 300, so fuck you, man. Look, from a, from a psychological perspective, there's probably like a really good like confidence booster in there. But again, like if we're talking long-term health benefits, I'm probably like, and again, the way that my brain thinks of that question there is I'm like, well, I'm like, when I'm 50, what are the benefits going to be of me squatting that amount of weight? Oh, I yeah. look at like, again, I still want to be the guy that, when I'm 50 years old and I'm rocking the silver fox look, I want to be the guy that can go into the gym, like say, like load a heavy deadlift or load a heavy squat and just rep it really, really nicely. 
and I want like the young, like 18 to 25 year old kids in the gym to look over and be like, who the fuck is that old cunt over in the corner and why is he so strong? Like that's what I, if I'm looking at my long-term like health benefits from, from my training, like that's the outcome that I want. Yep. But as far as like physiological health benefits, like it's not going to lower your blood pressure. It's not going to lower your resting heart rate. Like when we look at the the scheme of like overall health, like I would probably say the best benefit is going to potentially be that psychological benefit that you're talking about of going, yeah, I'm confident because I'm strong. But in terms of, again, like if we're thinking long-term in terms of longevity, like how well are you going to be moving when you've been squatting heavy? And I'm talking like, you know, 250 plus for 20 years, like, yeah, and I think that's probably a good distinction to make is when when we say when you're saying that you're you're referencing those like really heavy high percentage low number squats. Yeah. Whereas if you go like heavy's relative, right? So like heavy yeah. heavy for one rep is like 300 kilos for for yeah. me. Um not for everyone, but for me. Um but heavy for 10 reps might be 200 kilos. So, yeah. but 200 kilos in the overall grand scheme of things is a pretty low percentage lift for a one RM. So if we're, if we then reframe the question to be heavy in terms of like heavy for a set instead of heavy yeah. for one, yeah, I think there's probably going to be a lot more long-term benefits in terms of like muscle growth, um, tendon and ligament structure, you know, learning to control your body through space, what bracing looks like, what pelvic stability looks like, and what muscular, like leg muscle development, how that transfers over to everyday life. I can use a great example of um, me and me and my dad, to be honest, we have the exact same issue in our knees. Mm-hmm. We both have very bad osteoarthritis, um, it's caused by two different things, but we both have that. He has trained probably probably 20 times total in his entire life. Yeah. Um, so very a very untrained individual. Yeah. He's done like running and swimming and things like that. I'm talking like gym sessions with resistance training. It's never been his thing. He His knee pain is a way worse than mine. His ability to move is way worse than mine. His ability to sit down and stand up is way worse than mine. He gets more flare-ups than I do. And I understand that he's older and there's other factors at play, but I also think a huge contributing factor is the amount of muscle tissue I have in my legs, the integrity and structure of my ligaments and, and joints, and how that then makes that knee work a lot better. Yeah. So I mean, like where I was kind of getting at, like at the start, I couldn't go like, like define heavy, like, mm. like I get like, if I look back to some of the people that I've worked with over the years, like I had some people come in there, they'll squat 80 kilos for one rep. And they're like, fuck, that was really heavy. And that was really hard. <laughs> I think when I do um, that, is it when I do it? No, I don't know. No, I don't know I just, why it, that happens. It just randomly pops up. 
like you know like i'll get like a client they'll come in they'll score 80 kills like oh that was really really hard i'm like you did it like that's awesome and then i get another client that comes in they score 280 and they're like oh that was pretty comfy today i'm like yeah cool but again like i think it comes back to like if we're looking at say we'll be generous here say a set of like between like four and ten like there's going to be some good like variety within that set are you still there yep okay cool i just thought the screen just frozen for a sec um but if we are looking for say like between instead of like say four and ten reps Mm -hmm. like as someone ages in particular like i mean like i'm 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 just imagining my my grandparents at the moment like my granddad's still pretty active. Well, for the most part, he moves around a hell of a lot better. Whereas I look at my nana, like they're both pretty much 80. Um, like my granddad will be 80 in like four weeks and my nana will be 81 in like two weeks or something like that or a couple of weeks, however many weeks it is. Um, but my nana is a lot more inactive than my granddad is. So when she tries to get up and down from like her seat, there's a lot more struggle there. Yeah. So if we're looking obviously at the, the benefits of going, well, if we are training squats and we are squatting heavy, like we're stimulating the muscle mass to make sure that it's staying around helpful as function as things start to happen, making sure that we're moving well in terms of like accessing you know, appropriate amounts of active range of motion so that we can actually, again, like thinking like as we get older, like if someone does have a little bit of a, a slip, like they're better able to like catch themselves, but don't fall down and break a hip. Like yeah. those are the health benefits that I would be looking at in terms of like health benefits of like a pushing one RM squat as long as you can long term. Like that's where I would struggle to find a health the one that you mentioned earlier, like the benefit of going, well, I know I can score a heavyweight and there's a, a confidence there. Yeah, there is a confusion. Yeah, so I think probably just summing it up, one RMs are a competition lift. Yeah, and there's not really a whole lot of benefit outside of that, other than feeling like a badass. Yeah, which is okay as well. Um, I'll I'll do kind of these two together because I think that they, it's really good because they tie in with each other. Is um, yeah squat strength transferring into deadlift strength how much yep and then squatting and deadlifting on the same day squatting and deadlifting yeah. the day Which after is- each other because i i think they they tie in really well together when i was looking at the questions as well i was like i want to answer these two as like one question yep. so as far as like squatting and deadlifting in the same session for example i feel like like so if, for me, for example, I will do like my main squat work and then I'll do a deadlift accessory afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then on my secondary day, I'll do my deadlift main work and a squat accessory afterwards. Yep. For me, I won't push them both hard in one session. But a great example I feel like is if you look at the Lily Bridges from the US, mm-hmm. they will go hard squat session, deadlift afterwards. But they have two weeks between heavy sessions because you know, when they're squatting mid to high 400s and then pulling mid to high 300s afterwards, they're going to need the time in between to really balance that out. Yeah. So I think their ultimate week is then like a heavy deadlift, lighter squat. So between heavy squat sessions, there's two weeks behind heavy deadlifts, there's two weeks there. 
Yeah. I think that's how they do it. Um, I recall from memory they used to do heavy, heavy, lightweight, heavy, heavy, lightweight. They've done it a few different ways, I think. Don't quote me on that one. Um, I think that's I really, think- that's that's really cool to point out as well. I think I want to touch on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. I think there's value in doing that, but I also think that the value in doing or programming that way comes when you've reached a level of competency that you don't need more regular exposures to enhance your skill. Yeah, because you're you're a technician already. Yeah. Like you look at how Eric squats. Oh my God, that man is a beautiful squatter. It's beautiful. And he's not going to forget how to do that or regress in a, in a two-week time period. But someone who's not as world-class as what Eric is at squatting would probably see more benefit in squatting every week instead of going like balls to the wall and then having two days, two weeks off. Well, I'm pretty sure Eric started competing when he was like 12 and he's my age, so he's like 33 now. Like that's a long, like obviously he's had a period of time where he's been away from competition, but like anytime he has a bit of a hiatus, he'll be like, oh, I'm coming back into training. Here's a 300 kilo squat. That's ridiculous. Like like he doesn't forget how to move absurd amounts of weight. He just needs time to refine and adapt his nervous system to be able to go, yeah, I can be back up at 400 now. Cool. But like as far as, like training them both in the same session. I think there can be a lot of validity in that in terms of gaining more frequency for those lifts throughout the week. Mm-hmm. Like I've got I've got a client in particular at the moment where we've got two lower body days. We go a squat for a main movement, an accessory squat. We then go a main squat movement here and then an accessory deadlift here. And that is a really nice balance for him to help rehab some stuff that we've got to go through but to build some good strength through his squat to build strength and power through his legs that then has a positive carryover to his deadlift. So to kind of tie it back into part two of the question of like whether the, the squat carries over into a deadlift, I think teaching the legs how to really push through the ground, which is a, an aspect of the deadlift. Like obviously if we break up, it's kind of like a push and a pull movement. But I think this is also when people start doing stuff that frankly like gives them the shits a little bit where people try to squat their deadlift. It's like, it's not a fucking squat off the floor. It's a deadlift. Like there should be a degree, like don't get me wrong. There are going to be people and we sort of touched on this early with squats, positioning and all that sort of jazz. There are going to be some people who mechanically have the ability to get into a squat-ish style stance. Like mm-hmm. for example, if, if you get someone who has beautiful sumo leverages, they're going to get into a position where it's just pretty much just going to be push through the legs, extend the knees. And mm-hmm. that's them standing up. That's them locked out happy days. Yeah. Like those people are probably going to benefit from any movement that helps them train their legs to be stronger to be able to do that. That Yeah, that push movement. But for like, if we take like, you know, guys like you and I who are just like, strong conventional deadlifters mm-hmm. is our comp squat going to directly carry over to our conventional deadlift i'm probably going to say not that much what i am however going to say is something like maybe like a front squat or like a heel elevated safety bar squat that may have a little bit more relative carryover 
But what I would probably say is going to be more beneficial for someone like you or me is a deadlift variation that teaches us to push through the legs with more intent. Yes. For me, that's always been a very low deficit deadlift, like a, a 10 kilo bumper, just a little bit more range than what I need to. And it's like, I get fucking good at pushing through that. When I go back to the floor, I'm like, I'm just hungry for it. Like I pulled 260 for a beltless triple off the floor. Mm -hmm. My following block, I pulled 270 for a triple like beltless, but not off a deficit. Nice. So I was like, cool. I, I then had a nice little increase on that. Yep. I then not long after that pulled 290 for a PB. Yeah. Like <clears throat> so those that's coming down to like a skill aspect too, though. Learning yep. to push, learning to push through the feet and learning to do the deadlift quote unquote properly or like how how we would like to see it performed. And to be fair, this is a, an aspect that I feel so many people just kind of miss the point on is I would almost always say that people aren't technically proficient enough, that they're just trying to slang weights around for the sake of trying to get stronger. Whereas if they spent time really refining the technique to the 99th like, percent like range of going, I am up here, I'm an absolute technician and my expression of skill and technique is second to none and they're still at a point where it's like, I'm just not strong enough. It's like, cool, now you can go and do accessories to really enhance that. But people immediately go, oh, well, I've, I fucked this up, so I'm immediately going to go do an accessory that should make me stronger and they just ingrain the same bad habits with sub-maximal lifts come back into the main stuff and the main stuff doesn't actually shift. Yeah, I, I definitely, I agree with you there, but I, I also think that there needs to be a balance between trying to technique your way to strength. Yes. And, and, and also just at some point, just getting, just fucking, stronger. Just getting fucking stronger. Yeah. Right. Like and the, my, there's a, the there's a fine example for there's this. a balance. We want to balance. Yeah. So, there's a, a Chinese female weightlifter. So um, Burley Hawk, who I think trained at Westside, he shared this video years and years and years ago, but it like, it's, it's my favorite video when it's like the, the, you know, the conversation between technique and strength. And obviously you get a weightlifter, they're generally speaking going to be a technician. Mm-hmm. But there is also going to be a point in time where technique does fail and strength. It's the, it's the whole, hold my beer, I'm going to go lift some heavy shit for you. And what we see in this video is this girl goes for like, I think it's like 110 kilo snatch or something like that. And she catches it, but she loses her position a little bit. And she does like this like weird like helicopter, mm -hmm. manages to recover, pull it back, and she stands up and she finishes the lift. And it's like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. Like, and, but obviously this is the, the perfect example where you've got someone who's just an amazing technician, but is just brutishly fucking strong. And there mm -hmm. needs to be that synergy between the two. And obviously, I think you and I both are a perfect example of someone who technically might be able to be good up to a point, but the moment they hit a little bit of turbulence, it all goes yeah. out the window. And that's the exact, that's exactly the, the, um, example that I was going to bring up is 
it's all well and good to try and technique yourself to to more strength and it yeah. will it will bring more strength gains it'll and that there's no doubt about that but at some point you also just have to do the work and get stronger because yeah at some point if you're a competitive lifter or if you're pushing the boundaries the weight is going to get heavy enough where something within the system of your technique there is going to be a weak link somewhere it's just the, the way the body works and when that when that weak link exposes itself if you've just tried to technique yourself to to more strength you're not going to be strong enough to overcome it and you're just going to fold yeah like and this is where like when i look at it's like back offsets for example if a back offset is kind of a little bit sloppy i'm like eh i don't like that like i want a back offset to be like technically precise at a very high RPE. Mm -hmm. And we've spoken about this obviously before where we're like, you know, an RPE should be inclusive of everything that makes up a good lift. Like, you know, yes. Like Bass talks about this quite a lot with like, with technique. It's like, if you execute your technique perfectly, it should look like you probably got another five to 10 kilos in that lift. But if you put on another, you know, 100 grams, bang. You just, you wouldn't have it. And that's obviously what we want to try and strive for. And there is that balance between going, yes, we want to be technically proficient as close to all the time as we can, but we also need to be then utilizing accessories, which just teach that, that base level of strength. So it's kind of like when technique is up here doing its thing, there is that base support here so that if for whatever reason this goes bang and there's an accident, it's like it hits that and we keep on pushing through. Yeah. So moral of the story, train your accessories harder so that you get stronger and stop sandbagging yeah. them. Stop being a pussy. Stop being a pussy on your accessories. Yeah. Um, you see that in Baz's lifts. Yeah. When he does something and he says it was like really hard or, or really heavy. Like I noticed it with his squats the other day. I think he did a paused double at 260 or something like that. And um it just looked beautiful. And but he's it, a technician. It, it looked like he could have done another one, two reps, maybe. But yeah, it was probably that's probably all he had on the day. But both of those reps looked beautiful. And like, and again, like, because obviously Bass coached me for, for years. Um, and the one thing that I very much took away and was kind of like my gold nugget from him was like the whole cliche saying of like practice makes perfect is like, no, no, no. It's like perfect practice, practice makes perfect. Like when you're doing your reps in your program, like the objective there is like, you want to practice it perfectly. Like yep, every time, you know, like you might sit there like, Oh, well, I, I want to do 180 kilos for five reps. But if you can only do five reps perfectly at 160, like 160 is your weight. Like mm -hmm. you might be able to do 180 for five, but it might look like absolute dog shit. Like that's not going to make you a better lifter. No. And that's, when it's like, cool, like you do your 160 for five, make them look stunning. And then as we said before, like you take your accessory movements and you fucking take that, you just you just absolutely run with it like a bloody bull on heat and you smash yourself in it and you actually make that hard enough to elicit the, the overall strength adaptation that you're after. Yeah, I agree. And RPE, like you said, is all inclusive of the entire lift. So yes. like saying this was an RPE seven, but I just lost upper back tension or whatever, that 
that's why I didn't get it. That means it was an RPE 10, not an RPE 7, because like, all of that is included. Like, for example, like, you know, Corinne? Yes. Yeah. I, so, don't, I don't I don't know Corinne, but I know of But you, you know who I'm yep. speaking I know, about. I know, I know who she Yeah. So she posted um, a video of her squats the other day. I think she hit like 150 for a double. And she was like, this was meant to be an RPE 6. I'm rating it as a 7 because I rushed the descent a little bit. But mm -hmm. again, she could have gone, oh, it was a six, but, you know. But I just rushed I it. I rushed it a little bit, so it was probably a little bit harder than it needed to be. But again, when we're talking about, like, integrity as an athlete, it's like, cool. Like, it was supposed to be a six, and I could make it a six, but I did this wrong, which made it rate one number higher. Like, yeah. owning up to your shit and going, yeah, like, it probably should have been easier. I just need to do better at X, Y, and Z to make it where it should be. And then yeah. it's easy to adjust and like, you know, alter yeah. things to make it appropriate. Yeah. And understanding that everything works as a unit and it's all encompassing. And just because saying it was an RPE seven, but you, you lost your brace, that's yeah. not, that's not doing anyone any favors. It's certainly not doing you as an athlete, any favors. What, like what you said, what you should be saying is oh, I, I fucked that up and I, I didn't brace properly. So instead of that being an RPE 7, which it should have been, that was actually an RPE 9. That, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can't take that set again in 10 minutes and it be an actual RPE 7. But saying it was a 7, but this happened, that shouldn't be in your vernacular. Correct. I, I think. So. I would agree. I just did want to touch on... One quick before we move off this one, um, the the transference of strength from like a squat to a deadlift. I think if we look at um, the the primary movers or the primary drivers of power in both are probably yeah. going to be like the muscles of the legs and the hips. So looking at it from that sense, there probably is going to be a little bit of like a general strength carryover, but that's. That's going to be to a lot of things, just not just like squats to deadlifts and deadlifts to squats. It'll just be like a generally I'm more stronger in those areas. So I'll be yeah. better at these things. But that doesn't mean that if you're a world-class squatter, you'll be a world-class deadlifter without ever deadlifting because obviously there's a skill component to the movement. But just a jet from a general strength attribute, I think there probably would be a little bit of crossover from one to the other. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as well, like, like using that example, like if you look at a world-class squatter, they're generally not a very good deadlifter either, comparatively. And if you look at world-class deadlifters, they're generally speaking not that good of squatters as well. Like use Jamal Brown, for example. You know, he's a guy that pulls 500, but I don't think he can... I think his best squat's like 380 or something like that. Yeah, which is nothing it's to still sneak. still fucking squat. Yeah, it's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not it's not on the but same level. The disparity between the two is substantial. Whereas anytime I look at like the best powerlifters, it's like they have a big squat, they have a big bench press, they have a big deadlift. Like you look again, John Hack, for example. You know, here's a guy that's but squatting, they're the rarities. Yeah, and they are the outliers. But if we are looking at like, for example, like there was a, a period of time with John's training where his squats were kind of around the 320, 330 mark. His bench was like 240-ish and his deadlifts were like 370. And then bang, all of a sudden, again, there's probably other variables here that we 
we don't need to discuss right now, but his squats went up to like 350, 360. His bench went up to like 260, 270. And his deadlifts went up to like 400, 410. Yeah. There was a substantial increase. Like, and don't get me wrong, he trained really, really hard. And there was a lot of really strong progress. But I think sort of coming back to the point you made of like, so most people, if you get stronger in a squat, the development of that leg strength is probably going to have a positive carryover to your deadlift. It's then going to be a matter of can you hold the position through your pelvis to protect your lower back to actually allow it to be transferable? Right. I think a good way of framing it might be if you if you come into the gym completely untrained, yeah, your ceiling might be at a one for, for both lifts, for example. If you then exclusively train squats for two years and you'd never ever deadlift your ceiling for deadlifts might now be at a five yeah your skill's not there to do it but your your ceiling for potential could would be higher because you've got the the musculature to facilitate that yeah um so yeah so probably just raises the ceiling the potential ceiling a little bit yeah um there is one question as well that we've kind of skipped over that I do want to address. Mm, go for it. Uh, it was, hang on one sec. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh. Barbell pad for squats. When to use? Never. No, no, never, ever. The only time you can use it is on a safety bar squat because that comes with pads. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't recommend taking them off either because it feels really crappy over here. <laughs> yeah. um, other than that, you can use the pad to like wave at people across the gym to get attention, throw it or at people throw it, yeah. if you want to be a pest. I've been known to use it as an air guitar before. Yeah. I, I did that in M and I's first gym session together and one or over. Fuck, that was a bold move on your first gym date. I even went down on one knee. A half kneeling air guitar with the squat pad. Fuck, mate. That is, that's a gutsy move. I know. I know. Hey, well so. <laughs> you're welcome. I also, um, this wasn't the same gym session. This was like two months down the track. We, we were officially dating by this point. I gave, gave her a little butt tap on the way past and um, some old lady up on the cardio deck rang corporate in Brisbane and said that I was harassing women in the gym. <laughs> Standard behavior. I was like, Jesus, that, that's a massive stretch. Um, all right. So I think what we should do is finish off on one more question. Um, need directions, benefits, and purpose. So I'm assuming that means like, knee directions in the squat and what would be the benefits of knee directions and what would be the purpose of knee directions so i'm going to take this more it's i'm going to take this more as like knee cave or like knees in or knees out instead of like knees forward because like your knees are always pretty much always going to go forward to some degree during a squat so we all know that you need to bend your knees forward 
So in and out, that's uh, not so widely recognized as a standard procedure. What would you think? My recommendations is obviously the knees tracking in line with the toes mm -hmm. and then enough lateral pressure to resist any dip inwards. Like obviously, yep. like the cue, knees out, knees out, knees out, knees out, I think it's bastardized. It does. I feel like a lot of people, when they've got their feet on the ground, they think knees out quite often causes a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we can maintain stability through the feet and then just cue, like, again, this is where, like, like face-to-face -face coaching is, like, when is someone is squatting, like, obviously not in a top set, like, as they're warming up, it's you literally, like, apply enough pressure into the side of the knee where it's, like, maintain contact here, but don't press in any hard of this mm -hmm. than, than you are now. And that gives them the idea of going, oh, cool, well, where I am now is where I need to hold. And I just need to keep doing that as it gets a little bit heavier. So then again, like I don't want to cue knees out, but I also don't want to see excessive knee caves. Like well, I used to work with, and I think this is a, an interesting point of like differentiating between men and women mm -hmm. of like a cue angle. Like, do you know what a cue angle is? A cue angle? Yeah. Oh. So what a cue angle is, is correct. Where the pelvis sits, it's the relative angle of the femur from the hip down to the knee. Okay. In women, it's a lot more so their pelvis might be out here and the knees have a greater cue angle because they'll come in and that's obviously because their pelvis will change for childbirth. Yeah. For men, it's a lot more straight up and down. Again, generalisation for like men versus women. Um, but what that can mean for women is you can see a little bit more valgus with mm -hmm. them just purely because of that cue angle. Again, this is where, you know, the perfect example of, yes, for the knee valgus camp, use Amanda Lawrence as the example because she's a world champion with a pretty severe knee valgus. Mm -hmm. um, again, outlier, I wouldn't recommend it as a general rule of thumb. Um, but at the same time, like, I would be looking at a lot of other things to assess why there may be a severe valgus. And I would then be trying to make sure that, you know, my eyes are dotted and my T's are crossed before I sit there and go, yes, this is a technique that we're definitely going to work with. Yeah. And I think for in a lot of those situations, while it comes back to that same question that we said before with the weightlifters is, are they strong because of that technique or in spite of that technique? Yeah. And could they be better with a, a different technique? So one of the things, so if I'm going to give my opinion on on the squats and, and the knees and, and everything, it's pretty much exactly in line with yours. I would, I would just like to say that I like to, obviously a squat pattern is a big factor that we're going to look at when we want to increase load and push high percentage is stability. And our ability to create the most amount of stability is going to increase our ceiling on the percentage of loads that we can lift. Okay, stability is a broad term, but in the concept of lifting, um, it's going. We're going to use it as the ability to control joints through range under load. Okay, so 
when we look at a squat, as I said before, the muscles of the legs and the hips are primarily what we're going to be using to complete a squat. And in order for those muscles to create as much power as possible, we want stability at the pelvis. Okay, the way that I'm going to teach creating stability at the pelvis is obviously through a strong brace, through the use of the Valsalva maneuver from the torso, acting upon the top end of the pelvis. And then we want an equal amount of internal and external rotation at the hips, fighting against each other to create stability at the hip joint. <clears throat> That's going to put us in the, the best, most safest position to transfer power through the squat, in my opinion. I would agree. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Cool. Um, man, that was we went pretty pretty far in on squats. Um, obviously, I feel like we could probably keep going, um, <laughs> but I, I think we should probably should just wrap it up there for this week. What do you think? Oh, again, we could rant and rave about shit for hours and hours and hours on end. But I think we've done a nice little introduction and a bit of an overview as to different aspects of squatting. Yeah. Um, I think it might also leave us with a good room to do a follow-up episode in a couple, like down the track. Yep. Where we yep. can maybe pick like one or two topics and go really deep on them. Yeah, I agree. I think there's probably this episode although covering a lot of questions is probably going to leave people with a few more questions. Um, and if that's the case, please feel free to DM either Ben or I with those questions. And we can just put that on our little notes list. Um, and if they're, if they weren't like a long enough conversation, we can just do a whole episode on one question and, yeah. and go like really, really deep because neither of us are scared to do that. No. We're both fairly rizzed up most of the time. Was that rizzed up or tizzed up? <laughs> <laughs> Rizzing with the tism, baby. <laughs> All right, mate. I'm going to go. I'm going to eat and I will chat to you very shortly. Sounds good, mate. I'm going to do the same. Thanks, everyone. Chat soon. See you later.